Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number, let's see here, 255 tonight. Um, Maurice is still going to be away for a while. Uh, Here's what happened. So we finally got it. My family finally got it. And it's been over two and a half years. And I was really sick for a couple days, but I'm good to go now. Everybody's healthy, healthy good to go and then uh, Maurice actually had it too for the first time and he got really sick but uh, he's got other stuff going on too so he'll be back towards the end of September because he's got a lot of personal stuff work stuff to catch up on all that but um, we brought back our buddy uh, Daniel here so we're gonna have a good show tonight Um, so yeah 255 we're gonna be discussing ancient mysteries I told Daniel to pick five of his top mysteries and we're gonna go through those and I'm gonna I pick top five uh my top five as well, maybe six. I don't know. I threw six on there, just an extra one, because um, I couldn't decide between two. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, if you're interested, go check out Daniel's channel, The Vortex. If you like everything having to do with UFOs, UAP, ancient mystery stuff, uh, cryptids, all that kind of amazing stuff, he interviews all the top people in these fields. So go check out his channel. I have the link down below. Um, and, uh, he's also got a website. Go check that out. Um, and if you're interested in supporting our show, all you have to do is click the link tree link down below. Um, we've got a merch store. I've created all the designs in our merch store. Uh, I'm not an amazing artist, but there's a couple cool ones in there. Uh, you can go check out. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, we also have plenty of awesome episodes, including one with Daniel from last time that's on the Patreon uh, that we have. So go check out our Patreon as well if you have not already. Uh, we've got Randall Carlson stuff on there. We've got uh, Rick Strassman, you name it. All the cool people we've had on the podcast, um, we've got stuff on there. And yeah, the best way to support the show though is if you're listening, uh, subscribe, like, and if you want to leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I really appreciate that. So, um, but yeah, without further ado, welcome back on the show. Daniel, how are you? Hey, Mike. Great to be back. I'm uh, honored to be returning once more, and it's always just a great time to be able to see all the different varieties of topics and guests that you conjure up for Mind Escape. And of course, I hope Maurice is doing well, you know, traversing the universe out there, exploring his own mysteries until yeah. he's uh, you know, returning back. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here, and you know, I'm looking forward to getting into some interesting topics this evening. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we were going to try and do this too, like a week and a half ago. And as pe- many people know, I was having some technical difficulties after I set up my new office space and um, got that all worked out and uh, debugged. So uh, we are good to go. But um, so why don't we start off with your, we'll do two of yours and then we'll get to two of mine. So what's your, your it doesn't have to be like an order, but what's one of your top mysteries? You know, and I, I thought back to when we were trying to do this last time, and I think we were just trying to figure three, if not you know, much less five or more. And it's still such a difficult um, 
situation to try to narrow it down. And I think, like you said, it's hard to say, like, number one favorite or just these top numbers. So I'll, I'll just kind of give you a rundown. And we can go through some of these really interesting places in history and in time here in the world that I think are really uh, amazing to consider what life was like, what the cultures were like, what the wisdom traditions at the time offered and the ways it's philosophy and spirituality and, and what we would have, you know, looked at in our time frame now back on and thought, wow, you know, these, these people are doing some amazing things, our ancestors perhaps, and, you know, what we can really learn from that uh, and where we can go with it today. So in no particular order, I'll start with a, uh, one that I think is particularly fascinating, I think it's really interesting to just consider the possibilities of what we know in conventional motives uh, of history and then also what we see in like alternative historic models as well. Um, so I guess the top one, at least I'll start out with, is going to be ancient Mesopotamia. Of course, the Fertile Crescent, you know, thinking about the uh, Tigris and, and Euphrates rivers and how this really started um, something we think of as like modern civilization and thinking of the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, the Akkadians and uh, all these different groups. You know, we're thinking of something that uh, was really just a few thousand years ago, but we're told this is sort of where civilization jump started. It sort of shot off from this little area in the near east of, uh, you know, the, what we think of as the Middle East and modern day Iraq and these places where now um, it's a very challenging area. You can't really just um, readily go there to check it out, um, unfortunately. And I think that there are a lot of places like um, in near Kuwait and in the Kuwaiti desert and in Iraq that seem like they probably have a lot of very um, invaluable history that most people will never get to see. Um, and just like last time, I brought a number of really interesting books. As you know, I'm really interested in a lot of literature on these subjects. And so I'll kind of use these as a cool reference, if not anything else, that people might be able to check out, whether it's an ebook or find a presentation online or something. But I'll start Do out with your one homework, pretty people. Neat. Yeah. You read. Do your homework. Yeah. Don't don't just say you like a topic and then get in fights with people. You got to read books. <laughs> right. And, and research uh, cross-reference. Don't just read one person. Read a bunch of people. You know, yeah, so. I mean, I, I think uh, those are great points because people often seek confirmation bias. They like their ideas to be um, the idea, you know, and they sometimes want other people to think of those ideas too. And that's that's fine. But I think it's important, like you said, to challenge your own viewpoints by, uh, you know, adversarial information, things that aren't really, um, you know, building up the same type of case or at least the model of history that can be completely contradictory. So I'll just... Share one, of course, um, a big influence for myself personally is going to be my buddy, the late Jim Mars, Our Cult of History. And this is kind of an interesting take on a lot of different topics, but I will say that he touches upon the issues of ancient Sumer, the notions of what we think of as the Anunnaki and what we could see as these sort of secretive societies or lineages that have gone through time holding this sort of uh, sacred knowledge of, of the tree of life and all of these different groups that stem from these uh, ancient um, sects that sprung out of ancient Mesopotamia and traveled sort of into modern, um, all the way through into modern Abrahamic faiths and, and all of these things. So I'll just give a shout out to my buddy Jim Mars, who tried to chronicle a lot of these different issues in his book, Our Cult of History. Um, and as you can see, it's a, a bit of a sensational headline there, but it's do the global elite conceal yeah. ancient aliens. And of course, you know, I think a lot of theorists the say people, yes. <laughs> of course, he was, uh, you know, seen a number of times on the syndicated network television show 
on the History Channel, Ancient Aliens, but he was also interested in a number of different topics regarding ancient history and, and different things. So I just wanted to mention that I think because of my, uh, my own work that it's been influenced by him a great deal. I knew him personally, and he was someone who tried to approach a lot of these things uh, with integrity when it came to investigative journalism. Um, and explore challenging topics at the same time that a lot of other people wouldn't maybe talk uh, about or, or look into so much. So I really think the whole notion of what we understand is these ancient mystery schools, um, you know, the, the traditions that sort of have a, a big impact on modern Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, you know, by the way of the, the whole concept of the Abrahamic faiths coming out of these earlier schools of uh, Mithraism, and uh, sort of these ideas of what we see, you know, coming all the way back from, you know, ancient Gnosticism into these ideas there, um, you know, really showing that these, the people of Sumer or Schumer um, subscribe to sort of this idea that it seems like uh, that these, uh, the Anunnaki, and this is obviously in modern ancient astronaut theory kind of blown out into many different outlooks, right. but it's something that we just have to keep in perspective that um, it's generally seen that these, um, these winged deities were sort of these harbingers of divinity and sort of represented some type of idea that the early people took enough time to make giant stone reliefs out of. And they, they take, uh, you know, these different, um, pictographs and, and, and different uh, cuneiform inscriptions and detail their king list and all of these different issues about dynasties, um, which seemed to stem back pretty far before what we were thinking, you know, um, you know, Doesn't, in the scope uh, of like not, modern history. Anunnaki just mean those who came from above or something like that too? Yeah, exactly. So Anu was the sky god, it was essentially like the, the, patriarch of of Sumer and the Sumerian mythology so Anu and the key would have been earth so from those uh, those who from heaven to earth came essentially is the the rough translation and so there's a lot of these ideas about how the the brothers um, Enki and Enlil and how humanity started and all this stuff and actually I think that one of the interesting ways in which we understand um, the story overall can be seen in something almost like The Lion King, which might sound kind of strange, but if you look at what happens in The Lion King, you know, it's about a story of two brothers, um, and one of them has uh, a family, you know, and the family is supposed to come and, and take the throne. But the other family member, the brother, is jealous and doesn't like that, and so tries to do away with it. And it's kind of a very... Um, you know, resembling story. And I just think it's one of those ways that, you know, you could go study the... Poor Simba. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and Simba essentially would be representative of humanity in some way that, you know, kind of got, um, you know, pushed out of the picture and done away with. And there's a lot more to this, of course, and I'm just kind of abbreviating a lot of this, but it's something that I think would have been amazing to go and, and be there in a place in time where, you know, if these people, the, the ancient... Schumers or Sumerians, the, the Babylonians, and all these different people later on, um, again, they took the time to make what seems to be like these incredibly intricate stone reliefs of different figures that seem like something out of fantasy or science fiction, you know, and they took so much time to write all these cuneiform tablets. Um, and I think numerous most tablets. people point to, too, when they look at these deities, they're, they're looking at the Assyrian uh, or the you know, Akkadian Apkalu, um, 
you know, and you make up a you you bring up a good point too when people you say ancient Mesopotamia or Sumer, they think it's just one civilization, but you do have the Akkadians, the Sumerians, uh, Babylonians, then later on the Assyrians. So I mean, this does encompass like a large um, history and geographic location. So I just wanted to point. You're that right. Out too. Yeah, I think it's kind of a mixed melting pot. Obviously, they talk about, you know, in the biblical perspective of, of Babylon and the Tower of Babel as being this sort of central place of like, you know, where all the um, the issues that sort of deviated from the um, sort of pure way. And I think that's one of the challenges we face is that there's a lot of cultural mixing and clashing going on. Of course, at the time, you have all these different views. Um, obviously, one of the things that I think fascinates a lot of people is that we don't really have a, a, a good sense of what was going on with, with these people outside of what we hear in these stories, but they had these ziggurats and ziggurats are like pyramids or structures that would have been used for um, a few different things, but namely we can kind of consider them to be like pyramids. And I think it would have been interesting to see, you know, if not to, if not anything else to understand what it could have been like to be there, to really look into what we think of as this place where maybe these, you know, these beings from, Whoever else, you know, came as Zechariah Sitchin and proposed, you know, the 12th planet, Nibiru and all of this stuff, which, you know, is interesting. But again, it's all very conflated because some people would contest that he wasn't a uh, scholar on cuneiform or Sumerian you know, scholar at all. And was just kind of really uh, inferring a lot of his own, uh, you know, ideas. And so we seem to think uh, about that through, I think, the, the modern astronaut, ancient astronaut lens quite a bit. But I'd like to see that. Maybe there's much more to it. Maybe there was a lot of different things happening, but we're told this is where modern modern language and, and agriculture and math and all these different things sort of sprung out almost out of nowhere. Either way, that's very curious. And I think that it's something we should you know be considered that a lot of things that we think of in culture and art and, um, and language and all of this really kind of started in this central location. So that would be definitely up there on the list. I'd love to go um, even... Now, under the current conditions, I know it's not something a lot of people would ever dare go to, but I've heard some interesting things. And I think going even to the, the Baghdad Museum would be really interesting, if not just to be able to, to see what it's like today. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, when I think of um, uh, this, you know, we're going to talk about Gobekli Tepe, you know, not to fast forward to one of mine, but um, we're mentioning all these things springing up out of nowhere. Um, but then you go back even further and talk about there and a lot of that stuff that we thought was coming from Mesopotamia, actually there's inklings of this even further back in, you know, Turkey, which isn't, is obviously in that same zone. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that it's interesting. And, and you mentioned too, um, you know, um, um, you know, these, these reliefs and everything. And I always look at the, you know, most people see the Apkalu um, and think, oh, they're, you know, they're they're winged angels or they're aliens or whatever, you know. And I think that um, we look at it from the context of like things that we think about and know about now, and we don't really try and put ourselves in that mindset. Like, hey, these people were actually thinking about like gods and goddesses. They weren't traversing the stars. They didn't have satellites to send out in space. You know, like I obviously we can't be certain about too many things, but we 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 can. I, I mean, I'm can safely say I don't think obviously any of these people were able to see space so they're speaking of these things from 
Like imagine not knowing what we know now scientifically. Like it would be hard to come up with these ideas of like von Neumann probes and aliens coming from here or there or whatever. So again, I think we try we we first of all we do anthropomorphize, but then we also look at it from like a current consciousness lens, which I think is a problem when you have these discussions because you kind of have to put yourself as as much as you could back in their shoes what did they have access to around them what were their resources like what was day-to-day life kind of like and i think that that you know once you do that it kind of puts things into perspective a little bit more and it's not to take the magic or the mystical aspects out of it it's just to like kind of you know i guess change the paradigm a little bit to get you back into that zone so yeah, and I think that's a good point because as we continue to see down the line or even maybe before, like you're suggesting, I think that there could be a lot to that. But it makes us wonder if these things seem to be something sensational or um, allegorical or even just um, metaphorical or whatever it is. They took a lot of time to make sure that these were like perfect inscriptions, you know, either way, whatever it was, whether they were literal or figurative. Um, it makes us wonder where where is a lot of the mundane stuff, and the reality is is that we do find a lot of mundane writings in cuneiform that are like receipts or just um, d- you know the layouts of what would have been houses or things that maybe um, could have been shopped for and acquired it at a local market or something. And so this is something where a lot of people argue you know we're only finding things that are extremely exotic and and very specific or almost that seem visual um but the writing of cuneiform was a really breakthrough way for people to share ideas and we look at it now as lines and you know arrows and and things that don't really make sense to us but this is like their modern language or alphabet and uh it's something that you know i think that there are supposedly thousands of these tablets and they're pretty small but to one of your points i think that we should say that it seems like a lot of these cultures did have some working knowledge some i don't know that we had a full understanding but of uh you know the stars and this, the heavens the night sky you know because obviously we we see this portrayed in a lot of their um, iconography or even some of their structures and, and one of the challenges is, is keeping track of that over a number of years to track the the passage of time and and as we know it you know a lot of times we we see these used as a, a form of a, a calendar um and we think of you know, how we can keep track of seasons, um, you know, for the purposes of agriculture and all of this stuff. So there are reliefs of things like Enki um, and his Absu, his watery abode, and this idea of like a certain number of stars and planets, like how would they have known this thing? And a lot of people suggest that maybe it's because they could have gone to space and things. And I don't know, but it's one of those things that makes you wonder, maybe someone's guess was, I guess we're going to Maybe they went numbers, you know. Yeah, maybe maybe they they did it in their mind. You know, maybe they took some entheogens and did it in their mind. You know, that's a possibility. And I know people here's here's something to consider too. So it's like you again, back to your resources, what do you have access to? Well, if you don't have metal alloys and rocket propulsion systems and things like that, what do you what do you have? And they probably understood consciousness and like the earth really well and like earth energies and things like that. So if you understand like entheogens and things like that you know, people now use entheogens to tap into certain things um, uh, and do some interesting things. And so there's some people that have even come up with like inventions and things like that. So if there really is something to uh, that altered state connection, maybe they were able to see some weird stuff or, you know, hypothesize from a different angle or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, 
you know, but yeah, I, I don't, they weren't, in my opinion, they weren't cruising the stars like we're able to today. So, yeah, and I do think a lot of people consider that, um, or maybe not a lot, but there are some out there, obviously, who consider that that relief of the tree of life was actually something that enabled them to do this rather than it being more or less a sort of a spiritual concept of creation and, you know, all these things, which very well could be as well, but it's something that we have to think of with the local um, resources and the environment. Would have this been a possibility that they were utilizing some kind of psychoactive plant and conjuring it into a brew or perhaps, uh, you know, ingesting it and then experiencing these incredible um, episodes that allowed them to conceive of such uh, incredible creation myths and, and things like this and deities and all of this. So I think that's very well um, part of the equation when it comes to these ancient civilizations. Absolutely. Um, you up, you also actually brought up a really good point, something I bring up often, which was the invention of writing uh, language and language. So like, you know, we think about it as like you said, just something like monotonous. Oh, I got to write this out or it's just language or whatever. But that was like technology to them to be able to convey an idea through like description and like sharing, having somebody be able to visualize something that you you came up with or visualize yourself. Um, that's technology back then. So I think that that's really important. And like you mentioned, I think what were the first, um, um, was it 3200 BC was the first uh, um, writing? Because I know we have, you know, um, Sumerian text and um, then it evolved. I think, oh, no, no, Egyptians 3200, I believe, BC. Yeah, Egyptians 3200 BC. So I don't know. Do you know when well, cuneiform came? I was at 4000 BC, I think, something around there. Yeah, it kind of stretches back um, because this area would have been, it seems to, I mean, this is also the interesting thing is we, we even now in our modern scope of history, we're thinking in like terms of maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years. We're talking about groups of people over at least two to three, if not four to five or more thousands of years at a time um, who can change a lot. And so we know for sure that the cuneiform can stretch back because they refer to in the cuneiform instances in their own historical records of time and our translations and our interpretation of these um, as going back further than that. And so that's the thing we have to consider is that this all didn't just start suddenly. I mean, we're trying to have... Um, you know, make sense out of situations. And that the challenging part about some of the things we see in cuneiform is something called the king's list, which is, you know, very interesting. But there are some ideas about this king's list that detail the lifespan of these kings going, you know, several thousands of years back, which if that's real, obviously that overthrows everything we know about conventional history and, and longevity and all this. But if it was well, just yeah, a what misinterpretation. These, du these dudes are living 10,000 years or whatever, you know, like, so I, I've heard different ideas of that. One would be um, their idea of time. The perception of time changed would be one of them. Another explanation I've heard is that those represented bloodlines, like not just one person, but like a, you know, um, a bloodline basically, um, I've also heard, what was another theory I heard that they're made up. It's like, a, like creating mythology and then adding it into your past kind of a thing, which, you know, cultures do do that too. So, I mean, what do you think about any of those? I mean, I love the idea that maybe there were people, like a singular person that's just 
I love that too, but thousands I mean, of years. But where, the, where are these dudes really... live in ten thousand years now? I mean, we don't have right. them anymore. They're in some shack out there in yeah. the desert, the Kuwaiti desert. Who knows? They got out I of here, right? <laughs> Breakaway. I guess so. But the thing is, is that it makes us wonder, like you said, it was this referring to a group over time. And even if that was the case, that still surpasses like any of our. It's real, remarkable, um, too. You know, you know ideas. Like oral, yeah. Or oral tradition or whatever, you know. So, yeah, I mean. But yeah. I shout out to. Uh, to I, I wanted to give a shout out to Shane. He he sent a nice super chat. Thanks, Shane. Shane's a producer on the show. He wanted me to say, I purchased this to say, I am the Lizard King. Okay, Shane, you are the Lizard King. Um, and then also, the only good edibles are eaten edibles. Okay, I can get down with that. Um, but, yeah, I think that uh, the King's List, because you have that with the Egyptians, right, too. So, like, you have the King's List from, you know, ancient Sumerian texts, um, which, what, what does that go back, like 30,000 years, something like that? Well, yeah, there's a lot of really um, very ambiguous ideas about sort of the uh, the mystery schools and what really um, was recorded at like the Library of Alexandria with the real histories of those royal dynasties and things that maybe stemmed back to a, you know, a type of Atlantis or something. You know, I think a lot of this ends up being, again, conflated based upon um, misinformed or very uh, imaginative writers and uh, i wonder because it, it makes us think like the the very conventional interpretations of this are are pretty much sticking to like you said maybe going back five six thousand years uh, and not really reaching far back and even when we see something like you mentioned earlier and not to jump the gun on this one but go back tepe mm-hmm. was you know twelve thousand plus or minus a thousand you know and and thinking of um looking at what uh, this is BC, you know, thinking of like what we can make sense of by way of figuring out um, how everything else fits into this, how these other people were existing at a time frame that might be a little bit beyond this, but there's no record or mention, at least as far as we're seeing, unless there is, and we just haven't really understood the relationship between these two um, or many, any different cultures. And maybe there is some, and I think that there could be a way for us to see as we continue to find things um we'll connect the dots a little bit more. But in doing so, we have to be careful not to um, put our own inferences in and just connect dots because we want them to be connected. I think that's one of the challenges we face is that some of these cultures uh, were, were very disparate. They were not all connected in some way. I think that some might have been. Uh, and that's also interesting. But at the same time, I don't know that we can always just try to relate everything connected together because I do think there is something else going on that may allow us to still be separated by vast distances or continents, but maybe we're able to tap into something that allows us to have something uh, inspirational that that gives us some similar qualities in our cultures and, and all of those things. So, you know, you mentioned Egypt, and that's that's uh, you know going to be in the direction that I was kind of going into next. That's definitely one of the areas um, of history that I'm fascinated with. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure too. Cuneiform was like 4,000 BC, and then Egyptian hieroglyphs pop up around 3,200 BC are the earliest ones I think that they found. Um, but there's actually a documentary I was going to mention too on this since we're on this topic. Um, so we've heard of um, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as being one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Where there's this documentary where this archaeologist lady. Um, hypothesized that they were actually the hanging gardens of uh, Sennacherib 
um, um, which is a king, and it was actually the Hanging Gardens in Nineveh, which is a different location, uh, but also I think towards northern Iraq, I believe, is where where it was, um, and that she found physical evidence of what this thing could be um, and everything. So um, in terms of this documentary, though, I really recommend it because, I mean, even though it's kind of more of a mainstream thing, there's a lot of cool, like, that's what most people don't realize. Like, I know, like, we're into the alternative stuff and everything, but there's some, like, real cool, like, regular archaeology stuff happening out there, too. So I really recommend this documentary. This lady is, like, one of the experts in cuneiform writing. Uh, she found this, she was looking for the hiking gardens of Babylon. They're obviously nowhere to be found in Babylon, so she found this possible other location where there's, like, aqueducts and things that you wouldn't have even thought, you know, kind of happening at that time. So it's really cool. So check that out. I think it was... Nova or BBC, one of those. I, you can find it. I'll try and find it and find the link and, and add it down below. I know it's on YouTube, so uh, people should be able to check that out. Uh, but yeah, I just thought that it was relevant to what we're talking about. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to add on this one, or do you want to move on to the next one? You know, we could go down the rabbit hole on, on uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia. We could do like a whole 10-episode series on just this topic alone. So Yeah, and, and I think it's important to, like you said, consider the conventional models of history um, of what these historians have dedicated their lives to try and make sense of and look at also maybe the alternative perspectives and kind of weigh in um, some of those, those different concepts in, in a sense that I think, um, you know, you don't have to ascribe to any of it, but the main thing is, is that if we don't regard any of the, uh, you know, the more mundane histories as it were, I think that we do ourselves a disservice because I think anything that we understand as far as by way of alternative history has to come from a you know predisposed notion of what we think happened and gives us a foundation in our outlook. So I think it is important to just consider all sides and um, you know formulate to the best of your ability what you can based upon the best available knowledge and, and wisdom and facts, you know, that's out there. So that sounds like a great documentary. Um, and I think that while there are a lot of really incredible things about ancient Sumer and Mesopotamia and the whole like earth chronicle series by, by Zechariah Sitchin, that gets into the whole ancient astronaut theory and all of this stuff. That's something that a lot of people are so, uh, you know, fascinated by, but at the same time, I didn't really want to make a big point about that because I think it, it becomes um, too much steeped in, in pop culture by way of just, uh, again, ends up conflating some of the different things. I think that at this point we can say there, there are obviously really simple reasons why we can appreciate Mesopotamia without jumping to the right. you know Space Brothers <laughs> perspective, which that's cool too, but I think it's something yeah. that you know relates to a little bit of a, a different issue. And I 100% agree with that. I mean, that's something we preach all the time, which is what you said. You know, like, look at both sides of it, kind of deduct your own reasonings and come to your own hypotheses and conclusions based on the full spectrum of information as opposed to just latching onto one thing or I watched one YouTube video or I went down a rabbit hole where it's just showing you a bunch of the same kind of confirmation bias type stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look at all of it, even some of the wackier stuff. Cause actually there's stuff that I found in some of the wackier stuff, um, that might have hints of truth in it that you can apply to the regular stuff. If that makes sense, you know, like you don't have to take all of the wacky stuff. There might be some, some real nuggets of knowledge in there if you're, if you know what you're looking for. So, and it's, it's also, I think 
good to just be knowledgeable that there are other perspectives out there. There are other interpretations and whether you ascribe to them or not, at least you know you have sort of a working knowledge of the different outlooks. And I think that that's to me really interesting because I like to talk to a lot of people and just as you and Maurice have done for a long time, it's something that you find out, wow, there's a lot of ways that people have tried to interpret our past. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting, mysterious areas that people try to look at from all angles. And some people might be a little bit more accurate or, or a little less accurate, depending on really what's going on. But it's important to, I think, acknowledge that based upon where we are in society, like you said, today, we try to make sense of how to look back in our ancient world um, the best we can. And I think it's good to see that, yeah, people are trying to figure it out from all sides. And and I think it's great, it's great to be able to see like you, you're taking a good um, level-headed approach with a lot of this. So ancient Mesopotamia is awesome. And, um, you know, it's a good starting point to, to continue on. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that one thing I see too is like, you know, maybe people that don't have time to research or they just don't care, they just want to talk about it or whatever. They think of history when we talk about like ancient Egypt or ancient Mesopotamia or whatever, that the whole thing's magic. Every aspect of it, everything is a mystical thing or like there was people living their day-to-day -day lives too. There was people working, you know, making food, bread, beer, you know, all the whole thing. These things were still happening back then. People still lived normal lives. Not everybody was some high priest that could calculate precession in the sky, you know, and stuff like that. So it's, I think it's important to, to look at the mystical nature of it. And like, I think that the, the, the pantheon of gods and the mysticism does get left out but i think that we overcompensate when we don't actually look into things sometimes i think that that's something to put into context too so uh but yeah let's move on to the next one what was your your number two well i i think um i've got a really fun one in mind but i think before i jump into mine you said you had some in, in mind as well do you know if uh you'd like to kind of hold off on that or do you want to just jump back and forth or how do you what kind of uh format we um, look at with this one yeah, go, no, throw throw another one out there. And if if you do end up picking one of the same same ones um, as me, I'll just expound when you're done with your portion of that, if that makes sense. Sure. I Yeah, I think um, I kind of hinted at this earlier. I'm really fascinated, as many people are, obviously, probably the, the whole world with ancient Egypt. And I think there's a lot to why we have this fascination i think those uh pyramids are pretty cool you know i think it's something that has obviously captivated everyone's imagination about what pyramids. life was like and all of this yeah <laughs> so i think that there's something uh, you know equally compelling to the pyramids and and for many reasons but and i think that the culture the mysticism all that stuff is great but like you said that the the mundane thing that we don't really give as much consideration as I think what formulated a lot of this conjecture about the mysticism, you had to have regular people there to talk, to even like talk about any of this sort of stuff for it to be relevant. Right. And there you've got, was that Khufu? Is that the, the great pyramid there yeah. in the middle? And I'll, I'll cool. point this out. One thing most people don't realize they see, they think the pyramid in the middle is the great pyramid that has the, it looks like almost like leftover, uh, polished stone from Tura towards the top, um, or maybe it's just falling away limestone. But uh, the 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 pyramid of um, uh, Khafre in the middle looks like the biggest pyramid, but it's not. It's just on uh, more of a, a bedrock or a foundation, so it looks like it's propped up more. 
but it's not as big as the Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid is the biggest one. So I just wanted to point that out. When people look at the Great Pyramids, they think the middle one with the the, the top, since it does look at it like it has some sort of like leftover cap action going on, they think that's the Great Pyramid. It's not. I just wanted to point that out because I, I, I do see people getting confused with that. Yeah, it's great. And I think that it's one of those things where we're looking at the skeletal remains of something that has obviously stood the test of time um, well before any of our modern structures or anything, and probably for long after. And uh, it's fascinating to no end because to consider that anyone would construct these for any number of reasons is already um, pretty difficult for most people to wrap their heads around, much less to find ways to engineer effectively um, and conveniently. You know, so I think that it's one of those engineering marvel, uh, marvels, right? And also, uh, it's, it's very enigmatic. It represents something. It's implicative. You know, there are implications as to the philosophy and the, the spiritual ideology, the, the practical um, historical aspects of why something like this would be erected and for what, you know? And, and so there are a lot of ideas about were these functional, were these tomes, were these used to be something that celebrated ideas of life and, and the afterlife and uh, or were they used to commune with some force of nature or the divine beyond our sort of uh, material ideas and um, there are a number of interpretations of the pyramids but one thing I find fascinating is that there in front of the pyramids or next to or nearby you also have a grand structure that is also highly contested uh, in its origins and its design and construct and, and all of these things because it's something that while <laughs> there you go while it's closely in the same proximity related to the pyramids it very well could be made by different people at a different time and one of the reasons why i think that that's important for us to consider is due to a guy who not only studied these to a great length but wrote about it made discoveries on this and he was dr john anthony west and i've got a really cool book of his right here called serpent in the sky the high wisdom of ancient egypt and in this he details the water erosion that they detected on the sides of the Sphinx, which was very uh, abnormal considering that we're looking at a desert-like area that's very, um, you know, much not in the, in the least sense wet. And that's one of the challenges is where would all of this water have come from for there to be water erosion? If you it rained... There, you can see it at the bottom to the left around the base of the Sphinx. So the base of the Sphinx, all that was carved and quarried, and then they created the Sphinx Temple, which you can't see in this picture. Um, but the, around the base there was carved out, but you see those striations, those vertical striations, and that's what Daniel's pointing to, and it's just so people get a visual. Yeah, I think it's really important to consider that while there are other interpretations, and also I think Robert Schock is a proponent of this as well, that um, it's something that we have to consider that if we find these types of things, we have to take them into account, even if they contradict a mainstream model of history, because even though our models are fun and they stand up in many ways to um, provide us with an idea, I mean, we have to adjust that according to our findings and facts. And if the fact is that the water erosion did a number on the sides of, of these structures, then some of that 
water came from somewhere, whether it was rains or floods um, or it was all submerged somehow. That's very curious. I think if not anything else, we should wonder and be considerate that maybe this area was submerged and maybe uh, was a completely different climate and much more temperate and could have been lush and, and had a lot of more vegetation. And uh, we're seeing a drastic change in the environment and sort of the, uh, the layout in a way that it looks to us like a desert. But maybe at one point it was more jungle-like or tropical. Um, so it, it drives my curiosity to think that this guy, you know, John Anthony West and others now who have found that this is very compelling could indicate that the Sphinx could be older than the pyramids and that they might have um, a date that reaches far back, more far than most people, most conventional scholars would suggest. That's you know, in line with the prevailing theories of humanity and, and this ascent of sophistication. Because when we're dealing with the possibility that such a structure was constructed, maybe not just 15 to 20,000 years ago, but maybe 40 or more thousand years ago, um, this does not seem in line with any conventional idea other than the things that helped to push that boundary back. Things like Gobekli Tepe, which could insinuate that maybe there were people who had advanced knowledge of construction and astronomy and these things that continue to surprise us as we make new discoveries. And so I'm excited by the possibility that we will continue to do that until the point that it will probably be widely accepted that someone made this object and it might have looked different and maybe it was altered time after time. Again, you know, look at what's happened even in our recent history with a lot of things, um, even the, I mean, we, we use different construction methods and materials today, but if you look at something like the Statue of Liberty, it wasn't originally the color it is now, right. but that's a different type of effect. We're seeing something similar, an alteration, maybe intentional or otherwise, upon a lot of these structures. Because if we were to be able to you know, behold these in their timely magnificence they would look and appear probably totally different and we might recognize them partially but again we're seeing the skeletal remains and maybe at one point it's insinuated that this wasn't a human head that maybe it was a uh, felid or feline head or maybe a canid uh dog yeah, the, head type anubis well i've i've heard anubis is speculation because the symbolism of anubis like um the jackal um supposedly uh and i don't know a ton about jackals but from a lot of the egyptian books that i've read and ancient egyptian um uh you know authors that talk about this kind of stuff you know the jackal i guess they go through graveyards and they're kind of like scavengers and stuff like that too so um maybe they felt like that was the symbolism for protecting the pharaohs or something like that. i could see something like that i guess would be wouldn't be out of the question but to your point so like a little background on the Sphinx. Uh, so you mentioned John Anthony West. I think John Anthony West put it even back almost as far as thirty-six thousand years ago. I don't. I. I don't. I can't go that far. I. I can't. I, I'm. I'm open to it, but I just don't see it being that old. Um, but you know, if they came out with more physical evidence to the contrary, I, I could get. I guess get behind that. But it just. That's just way too far for me to uh, get behind. But anyways, um, that was just one of his speculations, too. I know he wasn't, like, dogmatic about that either. But um, – and then the other thing is, so, like, the, 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 
this it's called the dream steel it's in between the pause there that tablet um so that depicts the story of Tutmosis the fourth who he fell asleep uh, against the sphinx when it was covered mostly in sand except for like the head poking out um, and he had a dream in the dream he was told that if he could uncover the sphinx that he would become pharaoh one day now that sounds like okay well yeah you're in line but he wasn't he wasn't like the next in line i think he was like the second or third in line uh, which was kind of unusual for some stuff to go down to even become pharaoh so that whole kind of prophecy came to be true which is kind of a a cool story and then so tutmosis the fourth is actually akhenaten's father uh, and obviously Akhenaten's the father of King Tut. So you have that whole lineage there. Um, and uh, so that's kind of interesting. And then, but yeah, that dream steal, you can look up the translation and it talks about the whole story, like what I'm talking about now. Um, and yeah, oh, to the to the water erosion thing, have you heard any different theories regarding that? Because I've heard a few. I, I don't know if you, do you ever check out that Ancient Architects channel? Yeah, that one's the, um, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So he does some like more like mainstream plus alternative stuff. But he, you know, I think he started out with some of the more alternative things and kind of gravitated a little bit more towards the mainstream stuff. But uh, I forget the dude's name, but he does really good stuff. Anyways, um, he ta he goes through in a couple of the episodes and gives you all the options of like what's known, how how could this have happened? And I think there's a couple geologists that that posit the idea that maybe there's these things that like happen where there's like salt deposits in the sand. And then when the dew comes in, it kind of like, you know, shuffles everything around a little bit and you see that stuff kind of fall off. So that's one of the theories. Uh, another theory is that that area was flooded during certain parts of the rainy season, you know, the Nile flooding. And actually most academics now suspect that, you know, obviously the great pyramid wasn't built by slaves, but by skilled tradesmen that during the rainy season, um, they, you know, they're farmers and stuff, but during the rainy season, they couldn't farm or do their work so that they would head towards the Great Pyramid and, uh, you know, become useful there. Uh, that's just one of the, the theories there. But yeah, so those are two of the ones. I don't know if you've heard any of the others, but, uh, you know, I know for a while it was considered wind erosion, which is just crazy to me that you could think that wind could do that because it doesn't even look like you look at like the American southwest and you do see wind erosion it looks very different than that so you're right and i think that that's one of the things that people are just trying to use as a way to explain based off of things we we've seen or witnessed in nature before and that's the challenge is it's so different than what we're seeing that it's just the closest thing i think that people can come up with as a way to try to make sense because the idea of water erosion just seems preposterous to think that there was water in the desert at one point and really that's that's kind of a backwards way of thinking. It's not that there was water in the desert. It's that we're seeing a completely different state of a place that was maybe once very lush, um, very green, and probably was much closer to a major body of water than, than it is now. It could be something totally different, but um, it's something that I think obviously contradicts the mainstream models. And unfortunately, it becomes very territorial. And when you have a prevailing outlook, uh, because of ego and things and, and establishment, those outlooks are, um, you know, maintained until something really overthrows it, popularity, funding, um, whatever it is. And, and often I think that's what we're dealing with. Not necessarily that people are very altruistic and that new discoveries are immediately making the headlines and, and changing history books. I think that that's a very 
um, difficult process for people to be open because a lot of times in science and history, people want names associated. They want to be known for something. They want to be able to have, you know, ideas associated with them and, and their discoveries. So sometimes, you know, I think we deal with a lot of those personalities uh, as we always have. So I like the idea that the water erosion insinuates a further time frame. <clears throat> I think John Anthony West is, as you can see here, one of the cool things is, and, and rest in peace, John, he's no longer with us. Yeah. This was actually my buddy Jim's book. He signed it as they went on their journey to their mystical journey in Egypt. I thought that was really cool. So, you know, he actually looked into this in a way that he thought maybe because of the archaeoastronomy or astroarchaeology that was telling of these dates. And that obviously becomes a very difficult thing to ascertain the, the specificities to you. If we're going to deal with something that actually gives us, you know, 40,000 years or like 30,000 years plus or minus 10,000, that's such a big span of time that we have a discrepancy, you know, and so we could even say 10,000 years is reasonable now because we know, as we'll get to here, um, you know, that there are places that we seem to think do fall now into that time frame. But I'll, I'll use this quick uh, opportunity um, to also mention that I think it's important to see that, um, you know, obviously ancient Egypt uh, and the, the Sphinx and all these things, um, there are many different parts of Egyptian life. Some people consider that before it was Egypt, it was Chem, um, and that they, you have the Chemicians, and that's where we get alchemy and all these things. Um, again, very interesting sort of mystical ideas that aren't really as grounded, um, I think, maybe as they could be in the modern, you know, the standard models of history. But it gives us something that to contemplate that maybe there are these groups that predate the ones uh, in the places that we know them to be in. And so now a lot of the, the territory in which we think of as Egypt is occupied by, um, you know, people who are not originally Egyptian. And I think that's really interesting to consider that maybe we see that um, there's a lot of changing. And that's the same with any place. I mean, look at, look at America, look at any mm -hmm. place now. It's like you have a lot of shifting of cultural um, heritage and, and all of this stuff. So it's something we, we will constantly deal with. I don't think we can avoid, but we have to, make sure that this information doesn't get assimilated and gone forever. So I think it's important. I think that there's all these interesting stories about the halls of records, um, you know, the, the chambers beneath the paw, um, all of these fun ideas that until someone blows it out into the open, um, you know, that actually can show that this stuff is happening or is there, then there could be any number of people um, Indiana Joneses who've gone out there and lone gunned it and then no one knows about it. Um, some people think that um, uh, who is this? Why uh, Huas is like yeah. withholding some like incredible information about these things that he's not ever going to let out. I don't know. Well, there that are voids under the about. there are voids under the paws. So I mean, I think they do. They did do like sonar and de detected that there are voids under there. You know, we know we've had Andrew Collins on the show and obviously he talks about Collins caves and like the cave system underneath the plateau and stuff like that. So yeah, I think there's definitely stuff to be discovered. I mean, we'd be stupid not to think that there's probably a whole ton of other things that we just haven't got to, right? Cause they have to go through it systematically or they just don't know where to look or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, you bring up some great points and um, look, I mean, to me it became, 
like over the last like year and a half, I used to be like so obsessed with like the timeline aspects of this um, because I thought that it really mattered. But within like the last year and a half, I think I, I've changed. Um, and I, I'm more interested in the consciousness. Like the, the, what did they know about consciousness? What did they know about life? What did they know about death? Um, what do they know about altered states of consciousness, things like that, because that's, what's more fascinating to me because whatever they knew, like how to build things or whatever. Um, I mean, does, does that even really matter today? I mean, maybe, maybe we could utilize it in different ways, but to know what the consciousness was like, I think that's a bigger key to this whole mystery. So I mean, at somewhere along the way, I got less fascinated or less obsessed with, the timeline aspect of it and became more fascinated with what were these people like? What were they trying to achieve? Um, what were the, the mystical natures of, of the more, you know, like metaphysical theories of what they had at the time and things like that? And where did, how did they come about that? So I, I don't know. That's just my perspective, but it has shifted over the years. Well, I think it's an important one because, um, you know, I, I'm right there with you. I think that it's important to value and to recognize the, um, the material culture, the, the aspects of what was left behind that we can glean historical insight from and, you know, try to establish a factual basis of a timeline or something about the, the material culture. And then we can think about the, the aspects of culture which are non-material that do insinuate a sense of spirituality, of reverence for something beyond. Um, and I, I think that that's really interesting because you have the ideas like the mystery schools, um, this whole idea of where some of these um, notions of of uh, the afterlife and, and what some of these the uh, iconography used and especially in hieroglyphics could be telling about what we understand with the book of the dead and the transition between this world and, and the one hereafter and I think it's fascinating and, and along those lines I'll share another really interesting book that I think is relevant because it deals with a number of these different issues here in such a way that I think, um, you know, has affected our modern sense of where we are um, with our spiritual compass based upon the ancient ideologies into where we go, you know, from here. And one of those uh, important figures who's tried to make sense of that is Manly P. Hall with his uh, the secret teachings of all ages. And this kind of spans across many, you know, all ages, but it's one of those things I think it's really important to see that the mystery schools of Egypt play such a big part in a lot of modern mythology, a modern, uh, modern theology, um, and modern spiritual ideas as well, because a lot of it stems from basically tapping into where we were with those timeframes and utilizing a sense of connection with nature. Obviously they talk about the the, uh, the lotus and a lot of these different ideas about the, um, the plant life and maybe what, as we were talking about earlier, can insinuate a connection to uh, aspects of reality beyond this one. Oh, oh they, yeah, um, they, they use blue lotus. for It's the blue lotus symbolisms all over ancient Egypt. They 100% used it. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where it's overlooked because we just like to think they, they liked blue stuff. They liked blue flowers. And it's like, well, you know, we know that there's a lot of symbolism and so obviously symbolism plays such a big part into any society that looks to maintain arcane knowledge. And now it's, it's everywhere. I mean, our modern society is full of it and we just use it in different ways. Our phones are full of it. We just call isn't, them emojis. Isn't you know? there even like on, uh, is it Seshet? 
um, there's like a cannabis leaf like above her head on one of the glyphs. It's like clearly a cannabis leaf. Like people try to say, oh, it's this or it's a papyrus leaf. No, it, that's a cannabis leaf. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. I mean, um, I think it's one of those things where you, you have a sort of a universal worldwide um, sense of understanding. It Maybe not all at the same time, but through these very interesting cultures that had reverence for these specific plants, which they depicted, they took the time to show that they had value placed upon these things. Even the Dendra light bulb, if you look at the symbolism that's happening there, it's a blue lotus at the base of it. And then it goes into this like bubble with this serpent. And I think that's interesting. Because when we're talking about entheogens, serpent iconography uh, is definitely something that's come up in my, you know, personal psychedelic experiences. And I know it's an archetype in a lot of people's. So that's interesting. So the light bulb at Dendra, I always, people are like, oh, they had electricity or, oh, they, you know, this was happening or that was happening. I look at it as more of like allegorical, like somebody got enlightened through these entheogens is kind of like where I go with that. I don't know if you have a different opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a sense of where we, um, we take, we extrapolate our modern sense of sophistication with technology and we look at history through that lens and we, we see things we think, Oh, you know, they have these pictures of weird, you know, um, pointed shapes and rocks. They must have been making rockets. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. not really. I mean, but <laughs> maybe, but I don't think so. It's yeah. just one of those things where it's like we're, again, we're conflating two different, completely separate ideas based upon this specific point with our modern history into a, a place and time that's sort of completely different contextual uh wise and so i think it's one of those things where we have to be careful not to do that and like you said just try to be in their shoes look at life and and their world through they the ways in which they would have understood it and i think that like you said if you if you look at what's going on with all of those symbols of the plants and how they're associated with various deities it becomes i think a little bit more um of a different story you know and a different way of interpreting the past. And I think it's really important to, to acknowledge the symbolism that's maintained all of these different arcane traditions um, in a way that really, um, like you said, deals a lot with language, with the attempt of looking at physical pictorial language in a way that's different than how maybe it was said. Because we don't have a person we could sit to to talk in whatever Egyptian language they were speaking to tell us these things. We have to look at a picture like we would try to look at old archival writings today and say, what were they thinking? What were they doing? And so we're looking at all of these things in a way that is completely set apart, degrees of separation apart from our own mentality. And I think that it's fun to see that now, you know, back then um, they were depicting things in, in pictorial form, pictographs, hieroglyphs, right? And now we're doing the same thing online, yeah. emojis. You know, emojis, we do the same yeah. thing. So I think there's something interesting about that. I think so. we're worse at it. I think we're, I think we're dumber <laughs> with it, but that's just my opinion. Um, yeah, so you mentioned you have Serpent in the Sky. That's a good book recommendation for sure. I think, it, look, I, I, if I had to pick like four books for somebody that's interested in the alternative and the mainstream, I think Serpent in the Sky is a good one. Uh, on Audible, there's these things, they're called the Great Courses, where these professors do lectures uh, on this stuff there's one on ancient egypt by bob uh 
Bob Breyer. It's a really good one. Bob Breyer's kind of like, you know, he's an academic, but he's really kind of open-minded too. Like he's not dogmatic when he's talking about this stuff. It's not like it has to be this. He's like, this is what we think, or this is our opinion. So I, I really like that. And it's long and he goes through the history of ancient Egypt, even the pre-civilization stuff, possibly like more like the Zeptepi stuff that might've been happening and things like that. Um, so go check that out. And then you have like, you know, your Graham Hancock, uh, Magicians of the Gods, which I think it's a little bit better than Fingerprints of the Gods. It's a little bit more updated, you know, like I, I think he came to some conclusions a little bit later on. So that, that, that might be a better thing to look at in terms of resource. Uh, and then Schwaller de Lubitz, Temple of Man, uh, you know, this idea, like you mentioned John Anthony West, John Anthony West's hero was Schwaller de Lubitz who used... Uh, symbolism, you know, and that's where John Anthony would take people through their symbolist tour of ancient Egypt and stuff like that. So I would say that those are really good resources to kind of get your feet uh, wet if you're interested in the, the topic. So Definitely. And it's funny you mentioned, uh, I mean, those are all great. And and I also say that like these these ones that I have, I just threw together and they're not like the the top of the line books about all this stuff. I no, think but I mean, there there's the Oxford, that, you know, the Oxford uh, ancient Egyptian is it Oxford dictionary or Oxford book on ancient Egypt. That's like a, that's like one of the most, you know, academic style ones, you know, there are, there are those ones, but I just try and give people like, you know, like I said, like I like to balance walk that line, you know, I, you, you mentioned it a couple times too. So I think those are good resources if you're into that kind of stuff. Sure. I mean, I think it's one of those things where if people are interested, they should take a look and see what they think. And I have a few things that I think, are cool i might not necessarily totally buy into or just totally say is there's nothing to it but at least they're they're a resource right and it's interesting you mentioned hancock because um i was on the fence should i bring fingerprints should i bring magicians so i was like no i'm not gonna bring either of those because i've already got Ooh. one of his that i am actually um, interested in as a, an additional place you know we've talked about ancient mesopotamia egypt obviously we could go into so many facets of that. And I think that the whole idea of the mystery schools, the the legacy from that, and maybe from the things that started before that, wherever it was, because that's a whole other discussion too, where the people, you know, got that and where it goes from there. And we can tell, you know, up until today, it's kind of been maintained. You look at the dollar and you've got the eye of providence on it. You know, you've got this, this idea of symbolism of, uh, you know, occult practices in our modern society that no one thinks anything of. But, I mean, I think most people kind of get the idea. It's in pop culture. We just kind of jokingly say it's the Illuminati and stuff yeah. like this. But really, I think there's much more to it. And obviously, these have been with us for a very long time. And symbolism plays a role in our psyche. It gets into the ideas of consciousness. So there's there's a greater aspect to all these things. And I think that's where these ideas were you know, connected with someone like Manly P. Hall's work here. And I'll just mention that this one, this is more, and it's funny you mentioned dogma or dogmatic approach. Um, this is one I came across. This is more just me sharing something personally I found at um, a store that I didn't know I'd ever really end up coming across. This one is Morals and Dogma, the Ancient Scottish Rite um, by Albert Pike. And the funny thing is, so here's Albert Pike. And this guy is, uh, let's see, there he is. Um, you know, a big part of Freemasonry in general. Um, he was going for the but, whole got, got the anthropomorphized God look, huh? Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, so this this says it's hard to see, but it says the Supreme Council of the thirty third degree for uh, Scottish Rite 
Freemasonry, esoteric Freemasonry only um, to be returned upon death. The funny thing is, is that didn't happen. You have the um, book. <laughs> as I have it here. And it's, it's, it was taken to, this is a, a Scottish Rite uh, spring reunion uh, in 67. And have you ever read this full, thing? I've gone through it many times. It's full of signatures from this reunion of people signing 32, 30, 31, 32, 33rd degree um, free. You know, because the funny thing is, is that... Um, you know, technically the 33rd is not acknowledged. It's uh, it's hard to see there, but they go all the way down 32 and yeah. that's it. And so like, a lot of these guys like are signing. It's like floor 13, right? It just doesn't exist. It's, um, it's, it's like uh, they're flaunting it. They're putting 33 next to it just to show that I'm actually 33rd degree, mm. but we're not supposed to actually acknowledge that. So curious, you know, it's so people are putting their symbols next to it and all of this Where'd stuff. Where'd you find this book? At like a bookshop so, or like a... It's a used bookstore. And, oh, interesting. Um, you know, it's it's got the the um, double-headed eagle. It's full of all kinds of symbolism. So the, the main reason I'm showing this is because um, the importance of the mystery schools lies in, in the societal acceptance of certain concepts that are agreed upon and carried down through their legacy, essentially. And so with these groups gaining popularity into the modern era, you have the outer circles of Freemasonry, which is like the fraternity groups of people who just get together in their local lodges and have a good time. Get together for coffee and, you know, breakfast and have a, you know, good time talking about work and stuff. And that's it. Maybe do a few rites and and uh, rituals, but they're not into anything sinister. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's where people... It's like the people that I know that are in it are like some of the nicest, most charitable people, you know, and like some interesting people too. But I mean, two, two really interesting Masons that we've had on the show a couple times each. We've had Randall Carlson on, uh, who's a Mason, and we've also had um, uh, P.D. Newman, who's the author of Alchemically Stoned, who correlates, you know, he goes into the whole Philosopher's Stone, possibly being... Uh, dimethyltryptamine extract and uh, obviously the acacia symbolism and everything like that so um, you know what's interesting too I was listening to the uh, Rick Strassman who was on Joe Rogan recently um, and he was talking about how they funded um, the Masons funded his early um, I guess trials or something like that which I thought was kind of interesting Um, so I don't know if people want to go check out yeah. that interview. That's kind of an interesting Some point. interesting connections. Um, yeah, one of the reasons I just thought this book was particularly interesting and in, in the whole idea of the outer circle of something like Freemasonry compared to maybe the inner circle of where people are, are genuinely interested in the arcane knowledge of the ancient past and these mystery schools is that this book details that. It's it's not just about the sort of the, the Christian angle of things, which that's fine. But this is getting into, um, you know, the, the Egyptians, the Chinese. Um, it's getting into all of these other places around the world, and it's cultivating this knowledge and compiling it in a way that's saying this is this is really what we're teaching. This is really the essence of a lot of what our mystical practices consist of, and it's full of like symbolism and and things from all these different cultures. Um, and you'd be, you think you're reading a history book almost when you're going through this. And the funny thing is, is that most people, conventional Freemasons, if you were to show them this, they wouldn't um, even know. They would have no idea that 
what they're really into is based upon a lot of other um, cultures, rites and practices and spiritual ideas. I mean, even and religions so, yeah. too, like ancient Sumer, we're talking about ancient Sumer and ancient Egypt. Both of those civilizations have influenced heavily uh, religions, modern religions like Christianity. You see a lot of the pine cone symbolism. You see a lot of um, the, 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 the fish, um, uh, symbolism you also see so i think the I, I, i'd have to go back and look but i think the the prayer to pita p-t-a-h the god of ancient egypt is pretty much very similar to the lord's prayer like pretty close if i'm not mistaken so you can look that up too so a lot of the stuff is taken you know and there is influence and causal lines that go back pretty far and stuff like that so i think you're dead on with um, the influences and the mystery schools and things like that. I think that that's huge. So, um, well, I think it's one of those parts that shows us the non-material aspects of culture um, that really helps us connect. Um, and I think that the material parts are the symbols and some of the structures and things. Obviously, masonry is full of that too. But it's really about understanding the, the connection and consciousness because we look back at the the material culture and we wonder what's going on. And when we see all these other mystical things, it starts to give us a different picture and i think that's what's really fascinating about it too yeah, absolutely um so my number one was the great pyramid which we kind of just discussed uh, we kind of stayed on it a little bit so you mentioned the architecture and everything the architect was hemi unu um if i'm not mistaken uh and pe the, you know it's people say that you know the mainstream is that khufu built the great pyramid and the sphinx and I think um, Khafre, that was the weird thing is I think Khafre was known to have already restored the Sphinx, even though he was the son of Khufu. So how would it already need to be restored just one um, generation later? That doesn't really See, make sense. See, there you go. So, yeah. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, people would point to the cartouche graffiti and they've tried to date it. And there's controversy with that. You can look up that whole stuff with Zahi Was and the the German archaeologist that tried to get the, the pigment sample and all that kind of stuff. But last year, and I don't know if you saw this, there was a story where a woman in Scotland, a woman archaeologist in Scotland, found a box with a piece of wood that was from the Great Pyramid that they dated to a thousand years previous to um, the construction, supposedly, of, of what it was, would be 4,500 years ago. Um, so if that's the case, you know, they... Then the you know the article talks about radiocarbon dating and how there there could be like fluctuation because of the the samples and things like that. You know, obviously there's controls and variables and things like that. <clears throat> but I just thought that that was interesting from like a timeline's perspective. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, my whole thought with the pyramid is you know everybody. Some people think it's a power generator. Some people you know the mainstream explanation it was you know a tomb and that the sarcophagus is where supposedly the body was laid to rest i think so if they're really you know the, the egyptians were really into consciousness right so i think that to me because of the way that the sound and everything i've never been in it but i've heard people like clap and talk in it and stuff like that uh meditating in there would be nuts think of like the ultimate um you know float tank scenario except you're you're in a sarcophagus it's like dying before you die which is a lot of what these mystery schools are about so i think from like a mystery schools tradition since what we're talking about that's the way i interpret it is that these things were used for these mystery school rituals um possibly like the ultimate 
version of that, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think it's a, a brilliant way to try to, you know, look at something that was in use in a way that is not now. Obviously, it's something that people try to go and and get a sensation of being there, like you're saying, really um, taking time to explore it in a modern sense, but looking at it through that ancient lens is probably quite a bit different. And you're right, there are a lot of um, aspects in these mystery schools and these different esoteric orders that deal with um, the the understanding of dying or death or passage of the physical, um, even in Masonry, in Freemasonry. The, one of the initiations is you have to enact dying, the death, right? And even ayahuasca is sometimes referred to as the little death. And I think a lot of these things are really fascinating to consider those, those data points and maybe the connections between them and this order of knowledge that's been upkept for millennia, perhaps, and, and the understanding that we, we have this concept of the physical passage and we relate it to it uh, in our modern world now. It's a very mournful, sad thing, of course, you know, but uh, I think we understood it in a much different context back then. Absolutely. So, yeah, so my number one was the Great Pyramid. Um, so we'll go to my number two, which was Soma slash Homa. Um, <clears throat> now, we've done, the, we have a two-part series so far. I have one more installment of that series to come here shortly. Uh, I have the episode ready to roll. Um, but so part one, um, we had Chris Bennett, who is a cannabis historian on who's wrote books like Lieber 420, uh, and some other books on the topic. I highly recommend them. Um, and his hypothesis is that Soma from, you know, if anybody doesn't know what Soma was, it was some sort of ancient entheogen or concoction that people, um, you know, in Northwest India would consume, um, and, in this ritualistic form. Um, and okay. So, you know, he thinks it's cannabis. And then part two, we did one, um, part two was with, uh, uh, what's the guys? Oh, uh, Matthew Clark, who wrote the book botanical ecstasies. And his hypothesis is that Soma was some sort of ayahuasca analog, some sort of like miss middle Eastern, uh, or, um, uh, you know, that kind of a region, um, you know, the Northwest India through like, um, you know, I guess that is kind of that region. Anyways, um, so Soma. Um, now, most people don't realize Soma has a cousin called Homa. So what happened was, you know, prior to like 1500 BC, you had a split off here. Let me pull up my notes really quick just so I I get this stuff uh, correct um, because I do think... Uh, this is important to get some of, you know, the research that I've done out there. But so you have, you know, the people um, from the Indo-Iranian migrations, um, you have a split off. So the main theory, and again, this isn't just like fact, there's, this is kind of like moving parts as most things are based on like etymology and linguistics and things like that. Uh, but you have, um, these are the descendants of the uh, Indo-European migration. So the Indo-Iranian migrations, you have the people that migrated around the Black Sea, around, um, you know, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, um, and then they go down and around uh, the top of the Caspian Sea, uh, down towards what's, you know, modern day Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Um, but then, so like, 
the thing that's interesting is the split off that happens is you have the main group of the Indo-Iranian split off. They go towards Northwest India and those become um, the people who created the Vedic culture. Um, you know, the Vedas, I'm sure most people have heard of the Vedas. Uh, and then you have the other split off. They go down south towards uh, Iran and they become the people that created the Avesta and um, Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism was the longest running consecutive religion in the world. Um, so the Rig Veda, I believe, is came about 1500 B.C. Um, and then Zoroastrianism slash the Avesta comes around somewhere between 1500 and 1000 BC. So the difference is those linguistics. So you have Soma, which is the Indian or Vedic tradition. Um, and then you have Homa, which is the Avesta version of that. They're both rituals associated with entheogens. Now there's some speculation. Some people say, oh, it wasn't entheogens or it was this or that. I've heard weird stuff. Oh, it was sugar. Cause they didn't know what sugar, you know, was like back then. Cause they couldn't, you know, um, you know, break it down the same way we can today and things like that. But, but if you look at the, the linguistics, so like Soma wasn't just, um, a compound either. Soma was also a God. Um, and yeah, so there's like a whole, like, I don't even know what you call them. I guess they're stanzas. There's all this, like these stanzas, um, or poems in the Rig Veda dedicated to Soma. So you can go check that out if you're interested. Um, and I don't want to get too nerd on this because I don't want to bore people. Um, but so you have this idea that these people were ingesting this stuff. Um, now there's physical proof that we have, um, too. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, cannabis stuff found. Some people point to ephedra, which is kind of like an upper. But the thing that is interesting is you, when you look at all the... Um, like here's some descriptions uh, from the physical descriptions of the soma, which would be the stalks of the plant were pressed with stone. So like that's the prefix. The su is the prefix um, for soma or so so suama. I, I believe I don't know how you pronounce that. Anyways, soma. Um, it's like S A O or S A U. Um, and so they were pressed. So what could you, you think about, like, what sh what would have been pressed to get stuff out of it? And that's why Matthew Clark thinks that they were probably pressing, um, like, cush grass or something that contained dimethyltryptamine. Uh, Chris Bennett contests that they were pressing cannabis, you know, um, stems and can cannabis buds and things like that, uh, which I could buy both of those. Um so the elixir was strained through wool and then it was mixed with milk and water. Uh, it was said to grow in the Hindu Kush mountains. Again, that's a candidate for cannabis right there. Um, it was yellow and green with long stalks. That sounds like cannabis to me. Um, let's see here. Um, it was associated again with the, the warrior god Indra who would drink it before battle um, so that's why some people speculate that it might've been a stimulant like ephedra because ephedra is found in that, that region. Um, and then there's other references it to, to helping people attain light and immortality. So again, that's more suggestive of an entheogen. Um, let's see here. So some of the Avesta, which would be the Iranian, uh, break off, uh, or the Homa or ha Haoma people, uh, the plant has stems and roots and branches. It's golden green, so that's a connection right there. They're both golden green. That could be cannabis. 
Um, that could also be cush grass and peganum harmala, which is an MAO inhibitor. Uh, it can be pressed. It's tall. It's fragrant. Cannabis is very fragrant. Um, grows in the mountains. Um, so I'm not going to go through all these because I'm going to do the final episode on a lot of this stuff. There is, I will point out the discrepancies though. So this is what, this is what's going to help me get to where I'm going with this. Um, both are described as plants, but both are also described as trees that grow in the mountains. Both are described as producing entheogenic states, but some of them also produce uh, stimulant like effects. Um, in the Rig Veda, it was usually obtained from traders, and in the Avesta, it was gathered by women. Um, let's see here. Um, Homa uh, was also found in the plural form many times in the Avesta. So <clears throat> while there is a lot of similarities, there are a lot of differences. Um, so my conclusion is this, is that I think both things could be correct, like meaning that the cannabis thing could be correct, and possibly other entheogens could be correct. Meaning this, early on in the history of it, before the break-off, before the Indo-Iranian break-off, you had this culture of these people using this. So I think it could have been cannabis initially, or probably was, and then at some point during the break-off, you have, maybe because they're going towards different regions, right? They don't have access to the same foliage and um, plant material or plants and fungi, whatever's in that area. They don't have access to the same stuff. So my hypothesis is that it's like saying psychedelics, but associated with ritual, meaning that it could be anything mind-altering, but associated with these specific rituals. But initially, I think it was one specific thing, and I think there's a good chance that it was probably cannabis based on Chris's research. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that, that totally bored you, but... Not at all. I think it's really fascinating. I think it's one of those things, like you said, it really connects together a lot of these ideas of these cultures and the history of people from all around the world utilizing the natural environment and the resources that they procured and in ritualistic ways um and it could be like you said maybe because of the um this depending on what what was uh, sparse or what was uh, readily available they might have had to have alternatives that seems like we know that the the kush aspect the, the cannabinoid um you know is is plentiful in that region and many of those ways you know it could be something that they didn't have enough of the um the psychedelic the psychoactive um you know inhibitor and i think that's one of those issues where it's like what was the best substitute well let's do something else and i think obviously that would have been a really noticeable effect um and it also reminds me of the whole, the whole idea of the acacia um the bark especially when the iranian um issue because a lot of that's going to be closer to the region of where the biblical literature um, is talking about the history of the, the things in, in that region. I do think it's something that we probably can find relation to um, that describes those very similar attributes of a plant that has those effects, um, if not a way to procure a plant with other um, materials that can allow you to ingest it orally and uh, to activate it that way. So like you said, whether it's analog, like a, an ayahuasca analog or something, it's a brew, um, you know, to, for them to be able to uh, utilize it. I think that's a, it's, it's a really amazing thing to think that we were, as people, we were doing this thousands of years ago um, and trying to use the best tools that we can and the resources that we can to keep up these um, very interesting ceremonies. I, I think it's amazing. And um, it kind of ties a little bit into one of my areas, which would have been Vedic India, um, which is really interesting because, you know, the whole Indian subcontinent is full of 
um, incredible, mysterious lore and, and history and, and spiritual concepts. Um, and there's so much to that, of course. Every one of these places and, and concepts could have its whole its own whole episode but i'll just say because i think it's really important to see that you know that there it's its own whole kind of world of of history and it can relate to many of these other places but a lot of times it's often relegated as its own sort of enclosure um outside of the western world but the the irony is, is a lot of it like you say it stems from an earlier period of the indo-iranian indo-european groups that broke off, like you said, to, you know, form these long running traditions and heritage of, um, you know, culture. And I think it's really important to see that the Vedas go way back to the Vedas and all of these different um, histories of India tell about some of these things in a way that uh, is, is incredible to consider that they have, um, you know, a long running written record of very fanciful stories, of very fanciful figures and mythologies and deities um, and tools and magic and all of these things. It makes us wonder what was really there and what was conjured up in the minds of the people that were living there at the time. Um, maybe there's a little bit of give and take for all of these types of things, but we hear um, these wonderful stories throughout um, these epics, the Mahabharata, um, the Upanishads, the... Um, Ramayana, um, and even in some of these areas where um, Rama and, and some of the, the, the physical locations, they found like, oh, well, these are real places. Um, and they're actually are, <laughs> yeah, what's the, like, the things to connect some of these areas. What's the Indian Atlantis? I forget what it's called. Uh, Dwarka? I think that's what it's called. Dwarka. Well, yeah, there, there's kind of, yeah, I mean, there's a, a number of these ideas of this sort of land or a place where there, there were people and there were different types of people too. There were, there were even writings dealing with different groups of, um, you know, people who weren't humans exactly, but they were very human-like and they also existed alongside the people. Um, and so we kind of wonder what happened to those guys? Are they still around somewhere or, or did we, did we assimilate them? Did we, you know, was there a genocide? You They're know, with a the uh, Sumerian things. kings. <laughs> they're all just hanging out down yeah. there you know and so i think there's something to um what these stories give us in the way of inspiration um a spiritual insight but also maybe of real historical value as we know as we talked about earlier you know some of these stories they seem like um their mythology until they're not until we find oh wow this is a you know this is that real place this is something that you know we're finding as a real thing like when they found the tomb of gilgamesh or what they thought was the tomb of gilgamesh like oh that's we thought this, this was just a story this city of troy right and so one of the interesting things is the the bridge to um where rama was in all these places they found this the bridge which is an enormous <laughs> feature of land that connects these was otherwise like an island set apart from the mainland of, of so India. Like, like land bridges then they think that you know according to their their mythology um, that this was a real bridge um, and they actually call it Adam's bridge Adam being like the first man so mm -hmm. like maybe some first men built this incredible bridge like structure or it could have just been a natural formation that has kind of been submerged I, I think it's incredible to, to see that even if we we know that there is land there that people probably would have tried to fashion it into something um, harnessable you know because we do that we terraform we try to make things mm -hmm. like 
you know, a lot of people think that maybe the pyramids are an emulation of mountains because they have the same features, same structure. We're looking at the majesty of the earth and we're like, wow, that's amazing. Let's look at what nature's doing. Look at what it's telling us to, to um, imitate, you know? So I think there's something to that, this whole idea that perhaps some of these areas um, that are mentioned in these epics of creation, the mythologies, not just the places, but the, the figures, the people, these things, um, maybe there's something to it. And I like the idea of the Vamanas as well, these supposed flying objects, which they describe in great detail, the mechanics, the, the, the motive power of, um, and that these were like flying objects, flying cities in ancient India, you know? So I wonder, you know, if some people might have ever come across these in the ancient world, or if not much less the modern world, come across something that they saw like, wow, you know, we don't understand this. We don't know what flight is. But there's this weird tool, this big something, and uh, maybe they destroyed it. Maybe there's not any left. Maybe there's one waiting for us in a cave or something, or behind some of these blocked doors in these ancient temples that are, have been sealed off from the from the public. You know, I think there's a lot to these interesting um, these temples that are uh, have such intricate designs and are almost like fractals in how they're constructed um, and the ways in which they're made. They're brilliant, and I think that it's it's amazing to see that we don't really do a lot like that, um, hardly at all, if not ever now. And so it makes us wonder what degree of inspiration someone would have to have, not much less you know a group of people, <laughs> you know, to make this all happen and to fashion these incredible temples and structures and places that harbor uh, you know treasures unknown. We don't know what some of these temples that have been sealed off and like intentionally um you know kept from the public or anyone's view for probably hundreds of years if not longer so um you know it's hard to really pinpoint all of these different places all over india itself but going back into sort of the the whole issue of you know this this whole place um vedic india i'll just say the the idea of the history the culture the understanding that has stemmed off from that in these regions into the himalayas where you have the cultivation of the, the Chinese um, areas, which we think of as China now, into these mountainous areas where you have all these practitioners of these very sacred arts coming together to cultivate the best wisdom traditions of the areas um, and harnessing that and teaching it and keeping it very exclusive to those groups. I mean, it's been something that's kept up for forever, um, as long as we could tell like that they've been doing it. And I hear some interesting things about some of these monasteries having books and writings that go back very far into antiquity that um you know i think the vatican's interested in and probably people have come and tried to make sense of who otherwise you know we were fortunate to even know to to imagine that this type of stuff exists out there to tell us about history untold and uh, to me that's that's amazing and I, I get excited to think about what all you know could be going on and that uh did actually happen and that, that we somehow had the foreknowledge and foresight to record through writing or, or oral tradition or any of these types of things. So, so Vedic India is definitely up there on my list. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you mentioned a couple things. You mentioned the Viamana. So that's one thing that has interest me as well. Recently, uh, a couple episodes ago, we had my friend um, Sanjana uh, Singh. She's a philosopher. Um, and I asked her because she lives in India. She's fascinated with like the whole UFO, UAP stuff. Um, you know, we talk about that kind of stuff. And I asked her about the Viamanas. Um, 
And she said that they kind of like the, her perception based on what she knows of them or like what people talk about there. Um, you know, she's saying that it's more like a chariot, like how we have a, like Apollo or like that's their version of that. So I don't know if that changes anything or whatever, if it doesn't, if it's the same, if we're thinking about it the same now or whatever, but that's what she said. It's basically like the chariot of, of those gods or whatever, you know, coming down or, you know, chariots of the gods. Yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, not, I not, not in that sense. I don't think like from like an, she wasn't meaning it for like an alien sense, but just like, you know, through the mythology, whether it's true, or not true, they had actual flying machines or not, but that's just the interpretation of the people there. I don't think they think about it the way we think about it, I guess is what kind of how I was throwing it out there. Right. You know, and it very well could be that it, it's just um, something that was just put in to color in the, the details of how they traversed the world. Um, and that's obviously really interesting. You have these figures that um, do have some very anthropomorphic um, values and, and attributes and give us a sense of like what, what they did in the world and maybe having some mode of transportation to do that makes sense and being able to detail that and all of this. Of course, I mean, that probably is a good fallback if not anything else to say, start from here. And if there, if we discover it, then it's going to be like Troy. It's going to be like Gilgamesh. It's going to be like, right. oh. Yeah, if you find a flying machine. Yeah. Like, I, know that there's like, <laughs> I know that there's like schematics for them and stuff like that too. But, I mean, who knows, what again, what was going on there. And one of the other interesting things is a lot there There are some scholars who consider the, the science, you know, what we think now is, is a Western discipline of science and math, that these things have been well documented apparently in, in many of these different writings um, and even though we think we've discovered some of these things in the modern world, there are many people who would attest to saying that these are these are far surpassing in, in longevity of of people discovering things like gravity or math, some you know high degrees of mathematics. Even medicine, like really the, show us. the Ayurveda, um, has lots of interesting medical stuff that makes a lot of sense even now to practical modern medicine so yeah i think that there's definitely something to be said about what you're saying right now um oh the other thing that i was going to mention too so i i brought up the uh viamana thing um but you mentioned something else too and i was i had it for a second now i'm losing it uh oh i don't know i'm i might i might have to come back to it but um you know to the point where you're talking about the soma homa thing um, you know, I'm not, that was just my personal, you know, speculation on it. But again, I could be convinced of different stuff. I've really tried to get everybody that I know that has anything to say about its opinion and read books on it and everything. And it's something that I've been fascinated with. Cause like the whole Soma being Amanita thing just does not fit anything that I know. Um, you know, I've tried Amanita once. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't something I would consider to be, I know some people use it. Some people microdose with it. It's one of the only mushrooms, psychoactive mushrooms, I know you can smoke. Uh, but, you know, the thing about Amanita is, like, you do have to decarboxylate it to get rid of the ibotanic acid. And then you're basically ingesting muscimol, which is like a hypnotic, uh, similar, actually, to like a blue lotus kind of effect. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting. But, yeah, I wouldn't – it's not like taking, you know, psilocybin where, you know, you're going to have a very um, – transcendent uh experience um it's a little bit different obviously but uh that being said i know that there's people that swear by it so i guess it just depends on how you look at it but yeah but the whole amanita thing and uh gordon wasson 
you know, his interpretation of um, Soma and all. I just doesn't doesn't resonate with me. Um, so that's why I went through all this stuff. Um, and I found that there are there is one thing that threw a, a little bit of a wrench into the research that I was doing, which is Russian archaeologists found um, a tapestry that has two people holding a mushroom over what looks like like an altar type thing or like a fire type thing. So it's like, is this, you know, is this, but it could still fit into what I was saying. It could be different entheogens used associated with ritual, you know. So they did find this fitting the time period in that region. So, um, you know, I'll include that in the last episode I do of the series. But, yeah, it's interesting stuff. And, um, you know, again, a lot of people say Soma and they all talk about Soma, but, you know, to actually do the research and, and everything. I put a lot of time into it and I can walk away honestly saying that I still don't know what it is. It's still considered a mystery to me. I have guesses. You have people like Chris Bennett and Matthew Clark doing the actual hard research out there. But yeah, the mystery continues with that one. Just got to keep chipping away. Um, and uh, yeah, so those were my first two, the Great Pyramid and Soma. Do you want to get to your third one? Well, I guess that would technically be is just, uh, you know, like I said, Vedic India is kind of a, a very broad, <laughs> you know, coverage. But I think that those um, very interesting features of the, again, the material culture, the, the structures, the temples, the supposed um, relics regarding, you know, the technologies, if they existed at all. Um, of course, the, the colorful mythologies of deities, pantheons, all this um, extend you know, over a, a number of years, it's not like it all just happened at once, you know, or at least the, the written mythologies and things as we see them. Um, but I think that there is a lot of interesting um, value, again, into the insight of Eastern traditions and the Eastern mysticism, the, the aspects of what we understand overall, I think, in consciousness has been integrated heavily into the, the Western um, spiritualism movements and, and the early... 18 and 1900s that really tried to, you know, bring together and cultivate a lot of these ideas. Um, and I think that's where people get this idea of the, the new age movement and things where you have uh, occult practitioners trying to bring in um, a lot of these Eastern concepts in a way that was normally just deemed satanic almost, you know, if not just outright um, devilry, <laughs> you know. And so it's one of those things where now it's very widely open, accepted meditation, yoga, consciousness um these are issues that have been you know well considered for you know as a normal staple in in mindfulness and philosophy and and all the tenets of um hinduism and buddhism and and zen and and confucianism and taoism and all of these things and i think it's really important to see that they're not all the same they all have uh interesting metaphysics they all have interesting history um and just like any any theological understanding um it's not necessarily just one or the other that's why i think a lot of people get confused is that even something conventional the bible the bible has a lot of moral insight you can get your moral compass from it but it has some historical insights as well and i think that's one of the things we have to look at what really is happening in history versus what was conjured up as a way to inspire people to have a, a moral outlook and have pillars to which they can live their life by. And uh, I think we see a lot of those things happening in a way that 
um, ends up falling a little bit to the wayside because people say, I don't, I don't really believe in all that um, magic stuff and like uh, divination and, and uh, the miracles, but Jesus is a cool guy and, you know, just do good and don't hurt anybody. And, and that's fine for, for whoever, but like, you know, some people they'll say, no, it was all real. It's, it's exactly how it said it happened this way. And it's very literal. And some people, again, the ways in which we interpret this history, all the denominations that people have for Christianity, you have the but, same things happening in all these Daniel, other traditions. As well. We are living, breathing magic, bro. We are living, breathing magic. This is it. How, why do we exist? Why are we here? This is something I question to myself regularly. Uh, and not to to plug, I'm not like a, a shameless plugger, but check out these t-shirts. Look at that top left corner. I decreated that design. <laughs> we are living, breathing magic. Okay. I took that, you know, that image and I recreated it from an actual Egyptian temple. So check that out. That's a pretty dope t-shirt if you're interested. And that middle one I drew as well. So that's a recreation of the Portara of Naxos. But anyways, I just thought I love that the, the living, breathing magic thing, that's something, like I said, I, I, I say it. Some days I believe it. Some days I don't. But either way, either way, we are here. We're, we're weird, you know. And so we're not just some product of like gurgling, bubbling chemicals that just like we could happen. be. But what what, what, fu what fun? <laughs> like what 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 does that do? That's not even fun. Number one, and it's depressing to think about. Like if you're gonna, it's a very Richard Dawkins style way of thinking, you know, which is it's not doing you any favors. I'll say. Yeah, that. you know, I, I like that hashtag. Let Marie speak. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I did but his yeah, outline you know, as well. That's that's a that's an original piece as well. It's the outline of his actual uh, picture. You know, um, you know, it's, that could be one you could throw on there. It's like sometimes you'll see that meme. It's like here's an old picture of me. And it's like a picture of a star or like the galaxy or something. That's yeah. obviously it's kind of clever, but you could do one of some like yeah, you know, the frothy uh, primordial ooze or something. Yeah. Just like <laughs> here's this is where I come from. Yeah, so, you know, who knows? I think that those are really strange things to think about either way, but, you know, it could be that some grand uh, architect thought, you know, I have these great people in mind, but in order to get there, <laughs> we're going to start simple with bubbling, fermenting, yeah, you know, primordial zoos. soup. <laughs> I will say most... Way to go. Most of the stuff we're talking about, like the Egyptian um, primordial mythologies, all these mythologies start with water, which is interesting, right? Um, so it's like, did they know that we evolved out of the water or is this speculation? Uh, you know, even um, so like the early pre-Socratics, I believe it was Thales who was a monist and he was a monist about water or he believed everything you know, is made up of water, which is an interesting idea back then if you didn't know much because, I mean, we do need water to survive. You know, the oceans make up most of the earth. Um, so, yeah, that's, like, pretty good guess from, like, an ancient perspective. Uh, yeah, I was just throwing that out there anyways. No, I mean, obviously we could see um, in, in the birthing process, the womb, yeah. you know, the, the infant inside being within this watery place that some some people actually have some kind of remembrance of being in this sort of strange um, environment that was wet and 
was water. And uh, even now people can have like those strange pre-birth memories somehow. And I think that's amazing. But obviously we, we look at nature and we sometimes take what we can from what it's showing us. And when people are born and there's water or when a, a pregnant woman's water breaks in the ancient world, that's like, oh, it's, that, that's the ancient divine waters you know it's like that's right. the waters of creation right there it's i mean it's very like literal thing it's like you don't we don't have any other frame of reference we don't have mm. science in in the same ways that we do today so i think that sometimes it's it's easy to see how we take these concepts and we we often relate them in, into our sophistications uh of knowledge and, and technical understanding because it's all at our fingertips we can see all this now but but ancient people they live very mundane, simple lives. And like you said, even though they might, might have been some like really interesting people, the priests and all of this stuff, not everyone was doing that. And everyone right. else was probably just an ordinary person just trying to figure it out. And just was like, oh, man, yeah, this, the level this of education stomach yeah. just had water come out of it. And now she's going to have this, this baby, you know? Yeah. And, and the level of education among most people was they were not there. I mean, the only people that were really educated in a lot of these ancient civilizations were kings, royalty, priests, scribes, people that actually needed to be educated. And then most of the other people, I mean, we can't say for sure, but I mean, that's, you know, so now we look at most people can read, write, you know, basic stuff. But back then, I don't think that that was the case. So I think that's something to, to think about as well. Um, so what were we talking about? What was your third one? It was Vedic India. Oh, yeah. And all okay. The, okay. The so we already of, of that, yeah. you know. So, yeah, you mentioned the Mahabhatara, the Bhagavad Gita. Um, you know, most people quote, I become death, destroyer of worlds. But, um, you know, there's some really interesting poetry in there. I think that that's something that definitely everybody should read uh, at least once in their life. If you're interested in these kind of pursuits, whether it be spiritual or ancient knowledge and stuff like that. So, Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, insightful. You don't have to necessarily... Um, subscribe to any of it or the history part of it, but just like the Bible, you know, it's got moral insight. It's got some historical insight. Maybe there's some some value in in both, or maybe there's some maybe wacky neither. shit in there too. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I think that's a it's an interesting uh, place and uh, culture and everything in, in our history. So that's definitely up there for me. Is Vedic India, um, and then you know, I think there's a lot to how we understand those connections between the rest of the world we we kind of isolate things but i mean there's definitely some interesting stuff happening in that whole region of, of asia you know which does include russia and all the different shamanic practices that sort of made their way in into many places and i think that you know even people say maybe maybe the figure we think of as jesus made it over there and and uh, was going on to you know learn from monks and, and meditation and all this and you know, just to consider that as a possibility that people are, are are trying to figure out how to relate spiritual ideas together in religious figures. It's, it, if it happened or not is is great, but it's like just to know that people are trying to relate ideas that are otherwise completely different cultures together. Um, this isn't something that was widely understood because we, we weren't, I mean, people rarely traveled the world, you know, back then. Mm -hmm. So you kind of stayed within your own bubble and to think that now we can be like oh this guy from one place in the world he must have gone and talked to these people and must have done this and i think it's fascinating but you know it's it's a much different time and place for us to even conceptualize a world travel you know now so 
Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned actually like uh, Siberian shamanism or, or these people going up, you know, towards there. You, we were talking about Amanita Muscaria. That is now, now that's where that does become actual legit. Like the Siberian shamans did use Amanita. There's actually some videos on YouTube you can watch of like, you know, how reindeer, the reindeer up there would eat the Amanita um, and then the shamans would drink their urine because once it's passed through uh, the liver, it gets all the ibotanic acid out of there and it becomes psychoactive. So um, that's part of it. I think they drink their own piss too, which is disgusting. But um, so, yeah, it's not not on my list of top psychedelics. You have to drink piss to, to get off on it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in terms of like, but yeah, there is some videos on, on YouTube you can watch of uh, what I'm talking about. So, uh, but, so that was your third one. Um, now let's get to my third one. Uh, the Eleusinian mysteries. So again, the two psychedelic ones, those are my only two psychedelic ones. I promise was the Soma and then now, um, the Eleusinian mysteries. So actually, and I'll pull up some pictures cause I do have some pictures of Eleusis, um, the mysteries for me is not necessarily just about the psychedelic aspects of it. There's actually a lot to it. Um, here, let me pull up some stuff here. Okay. So here's actually, these are the Plutonian caves of Eleusis. Um, and the interesting thing about this, I had <laughs> during a psychedelic experience, um, I had this vision of Plato um, in Eleusis, having his first psychedelic experience, and then walking over to these caves, um, which is in the area, and coming up with the idea of the allegory of the cave. Um, now, I don't not saying that that happened. It's pure speculation and just part of one of my trip reports. But I thought that that was interesting. And if you look at this, you can kind of see where I was going with it, um, and just being in an altered state of consciousness and. You know, this, this, this idea. So if you don't know what the, the Eleusinian mysteries are, um, you know, they ran between like 1400 BC to like 392 BC. Um, some people say that it came from the Minoan cults, um, that kind of, you know, evolved later on into the Mycenaean cults, which became, you know, the Greek cults. Um, uh, let's see here. Oh, and there's other, so <laughs> later on, you know, Eleusis got destroyed uh, after, I forget what year, but then Marcus Aurelius rebuilt it, which I thought was pretty awesome. And if you, you're not familiar with Marcus Aurelius or his Stoic philosophy, I recommend uh, picking up Marcus Aurelius's meditations because it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, even if you're not into like Stoicism, I think it's really worth checking out. Um, but so, yeah, I had that, that experience. Here's the Plutonian Caves of Eleusis. But here's where, um, this is called the Telesterion. Uh, the Telesterion is where, um, you know, things were seen, things were heard, and things were, you know, basically ingested. Um, and supposedly there's older foundations underneath the Telesterion as well. Um, so the whole thing about the Eleusinian Mysteries was it was based on an agrarian cult. So you have the Lesser Mysteries, which would take place in spring, uh, and then you had the Greater Mysteries, which would take place in the fall. The lesser mysteries, um, you could participate in as much as you wanted. But the greater mysteries, you could only do once in your life. And you had to do it, but you could only do it once. 
So that being said, um, you know, it's centered around the mythology of Persephone being taken into the underworld by Hades. She takes a bite of the um, pomegranate and then she has to spend two thirds of the year in the underworld before she returns um, to her mother, Demeter. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of correlation. This guy, Brian Morescu, recently wrote a book uh, within the last year and a half called The Immortality Key that, you know, he goes through and he finds physical evidence for ergot use, um, which ergot is a precursor for LSD. Uh, but ergot alone is toxic, so um, it, that alone would not do it. But then there, there's a lot of research into how they would use um, and get rid of all the uh, toxic aspects of it so they can ingest it. Now, I'm not so convinced that it was just ergot or, or LSD. I mean, there's different speculations. I know Terrence McKenna speculated that there was possibly psilocybin or mushrooms in there. Um, again, there's other Matthew Clark, who we've had on the podcast discussing Soma. He believes that it could have even been since Pegamum, Pegamum harmala, which is an MAO, uh, is prevalent in the area. Same thing with a lot of plants that contain dimethyltryptamine. He's saying that that could have even been some sort of uh, analog as well. But anyways, the theory for the LSD thing is interesting because so in, in towards the end of the harvest, you would get uh, this wheat fungus that grows on rye and grain uh, called Claviceps purpurea, uh, which is, um, again, ergot. It contains ergot. Um, and that's towards the greater mysteries, which did contain some sort of psychedelic potion. It was called Kekion or Kikion. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing about this is, again, I think there's a lot of stuff to be figured out still, but, you know, it was said that these people, you know, were going through these rituals and they were going to die before they die, or they had the ability to experience, this one great mystery and then never again. I mean, imagine that having this, this ritualistic experience festival thing where you're, 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 um, you know, you're going through starvation or not starvation, but you're, um, fasting. Okay. You're fasting leading up to this thing. And then you take this psychoactive brew that you've never taken before. And you experience this crazy experience with all these other people in this magical place and then you have this transcendent experience and then you're never allowed to experience it again. You would wonder about that your whole life, right? Like it, it's just one of those things, like think about like having the most intense psychedelic experience and then never being able to do it again for whatever reason. Um, and then I forget what year, uh, it might've been 400 BC, somewhere around there. Um, this guy named Alcibiades was said to have uh, profaned the Eleusinian mysteries at a dinner party. So that speculation is that he, what he did was he most likely um, took psychedelics at a dinner party um, when you weren't allowed to. Obviously, you're only allowed to do it once. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of interesting as well. But, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of the spiel on that. You know, Eleusis is an interesting site, even if you're not into the other aspects of it. Um, later on, it was destroyed by uh, Alec, Alaric the Visigoth, um, who was a Christian. Um, here's another view of the Plutonian caves. Um, but the Plutonian caves are interesting. Again, I could totally see like, you know, um, you know, Pythagoras seeing geometric shapes while during the Eleusinian mysteries, and then 
you know, like this might have been the inspiration for a lot of these people's uh, discoveries and during this time, you know, philosophy, you know, another thing, and I think Daniel could probably speak to this too, at least for me, when I've come down from any psychoactive compounds, specifically, more specifically psilocybin, you want to get your life together. You want to be a better person. You start to think like more ethically, more uh, clear in regards to that kind of stuff. So you could say maybe Socrates got his ethics um, or his fascination with, you know, ethics and morals from there. Um, you know, again, Pythagoras and, um, you know, Euclid, uh, maybe seen geometric shapes, uh, you know, Plato coming up with this theory of forms and this more perfect realm that we, you know, this idea of Gnosticism and Gnosis and things like that. I don't know. These are just my ideas, but I think that there's a lot there. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any, any input, Daniel? Yeah, I think that's a really a, a great interpretation of what we're seeing and again, the remains of, you know, this beautiful place that had so much history to it. And I think that's one of the challenges we're always faced with. We're, we're attempting to grasp what once was and just to, to envision these grand philosophers there um, and in their time, not even being much of more than really just having their place in society and, and formulating a lot of these things in society at the time, you know, to become much more well-known later on, you know? And so it's funny how, you know, at the time they were probably not realizing the, the weight and um, depth that it would have on all of philosophy, Western philosophy. And as you say, you know, it's, it's really important to consider the reality that uh, it's something that I think does have an effect. And, and we've talked before at, at how, you can look at Pythagoras and who's considered the father, one of the main fathers of Western philosophy, um, maybe not even being a real person and being a group of people that we call the, the Pythagoreans. Um, and I think that as much as I um, really admire Pythagoras and not just for the, um, <laughs> the theorem that everyone knows and learns in school, but the idea of, of universe, uh, musical universalities, you know, the, the music of the spheres, the idea that, Resonance is uh, prevalent is is a underlying theme in all of of universe and of nature and that all things vibrate and have a frequency and I think obviously when when in an experience either induced through natural means or um, you know doing something externally that induces an experience um, vibration is such an intense part of that I think we we often see geometry we experience form of resonances in, in many different shapes and, and ways. And, and uh, I think that a visual understanding helps to shape and influence our world. And in doing so, we come back, like as you say, um, more refined. And in some way, I think that it's one of those issues of where we try to make sense of, and now what we think of as these, <laughs> these psychedelic trips, whereas back then it was um, a form of divination almost, a form of communing with the divine um, through natural sources and i find that so fascinating to maintain that outlook um even now whereas a lot of times it's seen as a recreational thing and uh, people are doing it all over the place and in many different settings and i think it's really important to consider how it helps us get back in touch with those innate qualities within us whether we consider that spirituality or um, a higher sense of self or dominion with um, the creator or whatever it is that we find um self to be beyond just the, the mind busying our outlook with thoughts. Um, you know, when we can find that place of silence that deepens our understanding of the universe and which we are connected to, 
we do come back, I think, grounded um, and trying to anchor in values of, of ethical magnitude that otherwise, like, you know, maybe we had at one point, but we come back almost as a different person. And we think about all the things that have affected us that we've uh, done to other people. And so there's a lot to that. I think it has affected the, the many cultures that we've described in ways that give us the inspirational figures, these um, philosophers and, and the weight that they've brought into the philosophical discussions on why ethics matters, why morals are a part of our outlook in a way that can, um, you know, steer us in different directions, you know, in, in the sense of uh, having a compass, um, you know, in an outlook that can be good or bad and, and these simple, um, you know, qualities that we think of now, I think are really a big part about having those types of experiences. So I think that whether it's something that people meditate on in caves or up in the mountains without any any obfuscation as some people might consider um, uh, or they, they're just eating every mushroom that they can get their hands on or they're doing anything. I mean, I think it all, it's, it's not, it's all going to be something that leads to an understanding of the way I don't think there's anything. I mean, it's definitely not a synthetic issue of, of trying to, um, I think mask a situation. I think that there is escapism. I think that these philosophers understood that, but I think that they felt more in tune about what they were doing with a sense of um, connectivity with not just who they were, but their people because they were social people. They were trying to connect with the community. And I think that's what brings a lot of these ideas together is that these weren't just individuals in caves uh, in solitude. Some of them might've been. And then of course you get this, the, the bringing out of that, back into society, the inclusion, um, the inclusiveness of, of how it, it's important to not retreat away and then be done. Um, but to look at these in, intense experiences, like you're, you're saying in these places here, when you only get to have them once, and then what do you do after that? Do you just retreat away? Do you, you contemplate on that for the rest of your life? Or do you go back into society and try to anchor in and be a pillar for, for those values. I think that that's where we see a lot of people struggle with their experiences today in the same ways that we, we were doing millennia ago. So I think it's mm. fascinating. I think it's really brilliant to be able to include something like this that a lot of people don't know about and wonderful pictures, by the way. So I'm really glad that you included this one. So look at the symbolism there. You've got the wheat there uh, on the left. And then is that the barrel or is that the the um the vessel that it was made in you know on the right i don't know this is just speculation but um yeah it's it's hard not to believe that that's what was happening you know i you know the interesting thing is i think that more people um thought that there was psychoactive compounds involved uh for a while uh but the thing is is like uh, <laughs> It used to be thought that it was just the rituals or just the fasting or just um, some sort of weird show or play, but it's like the Greeks were known for their plays and their shows and things like that. So, you know, those things wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. So the things that people were pointing to weren't these like transcend transcendent things that um, anybody can experience this one time. So it's like you think about that's that's the one thing I'll point out. It's like psychedelics like when you take that compound you're in it you know you're not, you're not getting you know like there might be some exceptions of people that are like more they have a higher tolerance for things or things like that but if you're given the right amount most people are going to have that experience as opposed to let's say a meditation experience or praying or something where you might have something happen or might not have something happen but everybody tuned into the same frequency having this experience is kind of interesting 
Yeah, and it's very ornate, and I think that it makes us wonder. Um, you know, these people went to great lengths to depict some of these things they had meaning. Sometimes we place more meaning in our interpretations than they originally intended. But I think at the same time, like, you know, it it it's a lot of effort <laughs> to you know carve out some of these beautiful uh, ornate designs, and I think it's amazing. Um, it looks like a pretty great place to be able to see even now, but we're looking again at the remnants of something which was, uh, you know, even profound for its time. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that was mine. The, the, uh, Lucidian mysteries. Um, cause again, we, we know a lot of a decent amount about them, but there's still a lot of mysterious aspects as there are with a lot of the mystery traditions. So, um, always something to learn, do your homework. Um, so yeah, so that was my third one. What's your, you you had the so what's your fourth one? Because the Vedas were your right. Favorite. So we talked a little bit earlier about how you were considering bringing in fingerprints of the gods and then maybe magicians of the gods. And I was actually kind of like, I Urgh. would definitely like to bring in both of those. But I'm gonna I already have one that I'm gonna pull in that was a, a Hancock original, and that is a really cool book. I think he came out with the most recent one, or at least more recent than those two, which is America Before. And this was a hard decision because there are so many places, I think, all over both, all of the Americas, which is, this is what this is about. This is America. Some people are, I guess, talking about North America, South America. It's crazy um, how it's big all of, of your books are that you brought. They're all, like, huge. <laughs> and I've read yeah. all I've read all of these books, but I, I've read most of them on Kindle or listened to them on Audible, so... I don't have. I do have a lot of physical copies of books, but the the ones that you that America before I have the uh, Kindle, so it's crazy how big that book is in real life. Yeah, they are very sizable, and um, you know if if you have it with you, it's definitely noticeable that someone will be looking at it and say, "Oh wow, you've got a Graham Hancock book called America Before." It's not <laughs> discreet that you can just yeah. throw into a little bag or something, but yeah, I got this when he came on his tour to America because he's not from America. He's uh, from the UK, as many people probably already know, but he extensively studied South American um, history and information, North American information to compile research uh, into this publication. Um, and I got him to, uh, when I saw him, I got to take you got him his Graham his Hancock. There, there it is, right? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people don't know his wife, Santa, is his photographer yeah. so they would go all these places all the stuff in, in underworld of them you know diving and a lot of their other work she'd be the one taking the photographs so it was really cool because they they are a pair you know it's like he's writing a lot of this but she's such a big backbone and all mm -hmm. of that so it was really great to be able to have um them together and, and to meet with them um and and then later on as well but this book is really cool because it shows that I think a lot of what he has suggested at for a long time um, does have some credence. And I think that obviously people consider him a pseudo-archaeologist. And the thing is, he never has really considered himself an archaeologist. He's a journalist. Yeah. He's just coming up with ideas about what we see as interpretations of the past. And, and so to kind of give an, an overview of what I think is interesting about the ancient history of the Americas, both North and South America, is that we really um, were shown that you know we we have this idea in the, in the conventional model of the the land bridge and the out of Africa theory, and that all these people came out out of Africa over through Asia all the way through 
where Russia is and Alaska and like down through the Bering North America and down yeah. through all the way down to Peru. And it's like, maybe someone did that, but like, no, those South people American people were, were there before for sure. Yeah. And that's what we're finding is that there's some really interesting remains that have been examined and, uh, uh organic remains and, and then fossilized. There's mounds um, too that are things. older. There's South American mounds that are older than our mounds in North America too. Right. And so that's a really fascinating thing that we're um, finding, you know, even in recent times that completely are starting to break down some of these earlier models. And what I really like about history, anthropology, archaeology, and, and, and what we can learn from in scientific approaches is that even though there are people and there are groups and, and all of these things that want to maintain an outlook because it is kind of like a foothold in our way of, of understanding and education. But when we detect things that contradict that, I think um, the, the noble view is to really go back and say, okay, we, we held this view. We can discard it. We don't have to completely um, forget it forever, but we can know that we at least looked at something at this point in time this way. And then now because of new surface information and data in the field, we have more to work with. So you're talking and about like Clovis really first, right? That's a great example. This was actually cool because we met in Albuquerque. So I'm over near the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas. And unfortunately, he didn't come to Texas on the tour. The closest place he came to, and this is in 2019, was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I thought, I'm going to drive there. And I'm going to go meet them. And so I did. And it was the closest place that I got to meet him um, out of everywhere else on his tour. And the, the cool thing about it is it was also the closest place to Clovis, New Mexico, named um, you know, rightly for the Clovis findings, um, which are not really anything more than s simple bits stone of stone tools. tools. Yeah. And this is amazing to think we build this, we conjure these ideas of this group of people who we know nothing about other than they had little bits of stone tools. And it's something that we have a, an issue with doing is that we sort of extrapolate, we embellish, we conflate, we interpret, and we imagine history based upon minimal amounts of material culture um and it's i'm not necessarily complaining about that although it is a challenge it's part of the human condition we like to envision what we can based upon our own outlook that's why we like to think about some of these very fanciful notions of like ancient astronaut theory and things although i do think there is something to what was happening it might not be exactly like eric von donnegan puts these aliens and rockets you know like <laughs> ships that we think of like today is these rockets, like they are using the same type of technology as we're using. And I don't think that's really the same thing. And so to me, I think it's interesting that these guys are um, big proponents of different views of history. And that's why I think that we can value them. Maybe not because they were right uh, in every instance or that they were literally doing exactly what they were proposing, but um, at least they challenged the narrative. And I think that's where we need to find ourselves looking more into is that maybe the narrative that we've been taught about the out of Africa theory, the Clovis theory, um, all of these things, they're currently being overthrown because of new findings. And that's only happening because scientists are more accepting of this information as being, um, you know, qualifying enough to be permissible or admissible in looking at new models. And one of the interesting things that we have um, going through a lot of the different people you know that have proposed these theories and who've tried to put forward different ideas historically um there's an interesting 
type of issue that um, Max Planck, who's a you know, the founding father of quantum theory, put forward, and, and maybe even has just been attributed to him in later times. But you this, the Planck principle is essentially that um, science will not progress any further until the scientists with those prevailing theories pass on, and new scientists can now step up and say, well, actually, here's what I think instead, because this guy just said, this is what's, what it is, and that's what we thought, because he was the prevailing scientist. Yeah. So sometimes he says that scientists uh, or science progresses one funeral at a time. <laughs> so unfortunately, that's sometimes what it takes is like, it's maybe dark not, and funny person. at the same time. You know, it could be maybe more or less an idea is transformed. Um, and I think that's really important. It doesn't have to be necessarily that someone has to literally die. Although that does happen, um, we can't be naive to that as a real possibility that that's really how we change a lot in our society. But at the same time, people are, are willing to change. They're willing to uh, change their outlooks. Like you said earlier that sometimes we can learn about a subject and find out a lot of great data and research information. And then it's something we can kind of get an idea on. But when we're presented with new information, it might change our mind. I think that makes for a good researcher. That's why you're doing a lot of the great work you're doing because you're open to the possibility. You're not steeped in this specific dogma or something. I always say people might be. I, I know what I don't know. I'm not going to fight with people about some shit that I've never researched or whatever. You know, if I've done the research and I have an opinion on something, I'll you know import myself into the situation. But for the most part, I don't speak on things that I don't at least have some sort of um, general knowledge of. And I think that that's kind of rare nowadays, right? Everybody wants to speak about stuff that they don't really know that much about. So That's just it. And so I'll just kind of get back to the main point about the Americas and the mysteries of both North and South America in that we've got a lot of strange places here in North America. I mean, there are a lot of mounds that people will often say they were just burial mounds. There's nothing more than that. And to continue to press the issue is almost um, insulting and maybe even racist. And I think that, you know, it's, it's something that, okay, there are those possibilities and we have to be careful not to devalue anybody. I think, you know, it, that does happen. There's colonialism and, and all of this, unfortunately, but I think that we have to make sure we do what we can to not devalue anyone's culture, material culture, spiritual culture, anything like that. But at the same time, we find things that seem to completely override some of these ideas. Um, and even in South America, you know, one of the, the things that Graham Hancock posits, and I don't think he's the only one, but this is something that he's obviously the proponent of, is that the, the Amazon um, seems like there were vast cities within the Amazon. And not only that there were these cities and people within them, but the Amazon itself is probably artificial. Um, not that it's not real plants and vegetation, but that it's it was a man-made, um, you know, uh, Rainforest. Well, we know the Mayans knew a lot about what are they, Terra Preta or Terra Prada or whatever that's called. Right. Yeah. The, the black earth, the black yeah. soil. That's a big thing he, he gets into in this as well is that we, we've lost a great deal of our understanding of agriculture, horticulture, and maintaining this sort of equilibrium with, with nature and producing um, food or vegetation or, or you know, agriculture. And, and that's a really interesting aspect of why we think that um, maybe there could be the possibility that the Amazon was grown and it wasn't just a natural phenomenon. And not to mention that, um, you know, 
through LIDAR, they're able to find all of these new sites, that they these Mayan sites and these Aztec sites and all these other sites that we didn't even know existed through uh, LIDAR technology. And, and they're finding a ton of them. And I know they're... He's even speculated that some of these civilizations or cultures might have had like a million people uh, at different times or whatever. But I will say this, to the point of the Amazon being grown, that's an interesting idea. I don't know if I believe it or not, but it's an interesting idea nonetheless. But there's this show, um, it's called Planet Earth. It's Darren Aronofsky, and I know my, some people might have a problem with Will Smith, but he like hosted this thing. Uh, but they talk about how the particles, these diatoms, um, they're like, I don't know if they're living or what I forget, but they, they float through the Gulf streams, um, and they, they seed or they somehow get mixed in with the Amazon. So it's like the earth is this like natural habitat in itself that like these cycles and the way that things move through the air and particles and, um, dusts and different things, you know, float around and it becomes part of other habitats that are crucial for those habitats. So I think that that's an important um, factor as well as understanding the natural flow of things as well. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that um, we as ancient people were much more in tune with uh, the natural cycles and states of, of our environments. And we've lost touch of that because I think of the circadian rhythms, the cycles of of people living in uh, heavily congested city areas that have all kinds of uh, you know, radiating with frequencies that are synthetic and all this stuff. So we've kind of become um, out of tune, so to speak. And I think that's really important that we recognize that ancient people weren't um, having to deal with that because it just it wasn't around in that same way. Um, so it's it's something that they were probably in a constant state of of being you know able to determine things that we think of now as, uh, you know, some kind of like wilderness survival mechanism or instinct mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, it's, it's just part of who we have always been. We just have, um, adapted into a new mode of uh, lifestyle. Absolutely. Great points. Is there anything you want to add to, uh, that one before we move on? Yeah. I'll just say that I think that, uh, the sites, the, the architectural, feats of engineering that we find in South America, um, Saxayomon, um, Teotihuacan, all of these different pyramidal Puma structures. Punku, don't forget. Puma Punku, of course. <laughs> um, all of the, <laughs> obviously, you know, whether people think it was, it was aliens <laughs> or if it was, um, you know, some kind of incredible advanced robots coming down and making weird blocks for no reason. I mean, who knows what was going on? Maybe it was just people that were bored who had the ability to do it that we just forgot Minecraft, about. Minecraft used to be real and then we escaped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it makes you wonder when you see all these blocks, we see these formations and they're just kind of left. Like, yeah. what happened? You know, what's going on here? And that's very curious because we don't see them like in action. Like when we right. see a pyramid, we're like, oh, we kind of get it it's like they were, yeah. they were doing stuff you know with, with some of these it's like we're seeing leftovers and for what so i i like the nazca lines and symbols they're very curious because you have to see them from an aerial view um, they're always finding about, new ones too and they just found yeah. a, a bunch of new ones last year but you make a good point lidar um the the ways in which we're doing archaeological surveying and field work is um, a world of difference than it was a hundred years ago because now we're not just trying to get people out there digging around i mean that's always going to happen 
but now we can use advanced um, machine learning, advanced AI, um, being able to go and do aerial um, photography, uh, satellite imaging, all of this stuff. Like I said, LiDAR, um, we're detecting geometric features that have always been um, there, but have just been uh, concealed because of um, debris and brush and all of this. So I, I'm fascinated with the possibilities of where that's going to take us with all these potential structures in both North and South America. And uh, I'd love to be able to explore more of these areas in a way that, you know, um, it's different when, when you hear about them, read about them, explore them in media versus being there in person, feeling them, seeing them, knowing them in that context, I think is really amazing. So I'm looking forward to exploring some of these other sites in both North and South America. Of course, in all of these uh, ones we've included as well. But uh, yeah, I would just say it's something that I think um, a lot of people don't consider that because we live here and sort of the, the epicenter of, of modern culture in the world in, in many ways, even though I think that many other places in the world have a lot going on, America seems to try to think of itself as um, the epicenter of, of all information and, and society. And it's like, we think we've discovered it all and we're just trying to do more. Like now we're going to the moon or, or space or Mars or something. It's like, there's still so much here where we've forgotten about that we've, we're trying to figure out. So I think that the, these, uh, both of North America and South America, um, Central America too, if you want to say that, you know, just the all inclusive of this beautiful place that, um, that I live, you know, and here uh, in Texas, there's still a lot of really interesting things I think we can find because it's kind of a, a connection between where people could potentially come from up through South America, through Central America, through, you know, Mexico, which would have been all the Aztec people um, and culture and community into, you know, the, the Northern American areas. So I am fascinated with what it would have been like a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, fifty thousand years ago. I mean, I think we could keep pushing it back. It might have been small, um, you know, proto um, hominids up there. I don't know. It's it could be, it could be totally different than we understand. But obviously, people have been here for a very long time. We're finding footprints. We're finding a lot of remains. We're finding very controversial things that yeah, are now being examined. A really old footprint found in white sands recently. Yeah, I think they pushed back the estimated understanding of people, some kind of people, here um, in North America. Some. 30,000 years ago. I think something to that effect. Yeah, there's uh, stone tools that were found in a cave in Chiquahete, Mexico, that are dated to be 30,000 years old, like 250 stone tools. Of course, you have the skeptical academics already saying that they're just chips from stalactites and slagmites falling and breaking off of one another, which sounds crazy. But um, <clears throat> to your point, too, so, so you, you mentioned America before Graham Hancock. Uh, highly recommend that as well. I've read it. Um, you also have a sister book, which a lot of people might not have read yet, but it's called Denise of an Origins uh, by Dr. Gregory Little and uh, Andrew Collins. And it goes into a lot of the same stuff about ancient America. Gregory Little actually is the most knowledgeable person I've ever talked to about Native American mounds. So uh, if you're looking for a good resource on that, he actually wrote an illustrated uh, book that goes through all the Native American mounds in America that I highly recommend. So go check that out. We've had him on the podcast a bunch. We did a slideshow episode with him in the past. Um, he's a really, really awesome resource on that. Um, but yeah, he brought up the the mounds I didn't even know about in South America that are like way older, like seven, 8,000 years old. Um, and in America, you have old ones too. You have Poverty Point, you have Cahokia. Um, 
you know there's a lot of weird stuff going on here too uh, actually, there was a finding, too, talk about Clovis. There was a finding in, in St. Joseph County, Michigan, uh, my home state, uh, where they found um, a Clovis uh, settlement that was supposed to be under ice during that time period. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, who knows what's going on there? But they found in this farmland, they found a bunch of Clovis tools, I guess. So, you know, go figure. I mean, were they under? There's also in uh, Traverse Bay, Michigan, there's also a underwater stone circle that has a um, mastodon carved into it. So that's kind of interesting. It's underwater. Um, and then also they recently found um, some Native American people found these these stone sites that are really deep underwater in the Huron Straits of Michigan as well. So lots of stuff happening in the Great Lakes, uh, even though... You know, and the last ice age, a lot of it was probably under ice. Who knows exactly what, how it happened or what year, whatever. So um, keep an eye on all that for sure. But, yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I think that's a great one. Okay, my next one is is a big one, and that's who built Gobekli Tepe and why. I don't know. Is Gobekli Tepe on your list? You know, I I think it's amazing. Um, there's no reason it's not on my list, but I think that out mm. of um, the ones that I I figured we ended up covering, I was like, I I think he's going to end up covering this Ooh. one, so I'm going to veer off into a different location. But I'm so no, fascinated no, with Gobekli Tepe. I'm glad um, you but did. I, I, wanted, I anticipated that you were going to include that, so I was like, you know what? I think I'll I'll have a different one. But uh, I think it's amazing to consider that these these pillars feature animals which don't from what i understand don't seem to be native to this area that's particularly interesting some of them yeah some of them well some of them are some of them aren't there's like a lot of fox there's what's known as the predator on one of them which could be like a mountain lion or a lion um and you have to think too that this would have been at the end of the last ice age so they would have had different you know, megafauna probably too that hasn't gone extinct yet. I mean, there's things that went right. extinct a few hundred years ago that we don't even know about, let alone twelve thousand years ago. Uh, this one that I have up right now. Okay, so Gobekli Tepe, uh, eleven thousand six hundred years old, which actually is the exact dating of um, Atlantis. If you're interested in that coincidence. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I don't believe it, it was Atlantis, but I do think that that's interesting. Um, but uh, so th- the question is, who built this? So there's been, you know, Klaus Schmidt discovered the site, I believe, what was it, 1994, 1995? Um, and I mean, I wasn't taught about this in school. Um, you know, I don't know if you were, uh, but that definitely wasn't brought up. We were always taught nope. that the Sumerians were the first civilization, as you mentioned, with the first first one of the the night here. Um, but yeah, Gobekli Tepe, you know, and then the speculation now is that they were hunter-gatherers that came together and started building things. But then you see, so here I'll get away from, this is the vulture pillar, pillar, um, I think 39, 29, 39, I forget. Um let me get to a different, let me get a more overhead view here, if I can find. So that's that predator I was talking about. So the interesting about, thing about Gobekli Tepe is all the T-pillars are relief carvings, which means they carved the stone away from, which is actually pretty hard to do. It's a lot harder than just carving something into stone, so that takes a lot of work. Right. Uh, 
which which makes me think do you think that they knew how to carve into something and they just decided to do it that way or do you think that they didn't know how to carve into something and that was how they thought to make things like us like three-dimensional i don't know just a it's a it, right it's a very challenging um method and engineering and and i think that when you look at the possibility of um of messing up you know if it one small thing that you mess up it's it's kind of like the whole thing is done and you either have to like etch it uh, a little bit differently this way or kind of like go into a different um idea of what you were making or you pretty much just say this one's this is, this is done we have to go do a different one um so it makes you wonder like the degree of um, efficiency, but also the degree of, of accuracy in which we're seeing things. Like, do we think that maybe um, they just tried the best they could, even if they messed up, or they were like, nope, this has to be perfect. And so we do see some of these shapes. They're not, obviously, like that one right there, you could see outside of the, the creature, it's not exactly straight. It's kind of like a rounded edge. Right. And it makes you think, okay, well, I guess they just, they, they didn't, it, maybe it wasn't they didn't care but it was just that was kind of already the best that they could get without furthering the uh compromising the integrity of the stone perhaps you know right and actually if you look there the interesting thing is you can see the ribs i've seen speculations that was that a predator like maybe this was post younger dryas and things were scarce maybe there wasn't a lot to eat could be a thing or um you know, obviously you can maybe see the ribs on some predators anyways. So there's that, but, um, it, it's called the predator. It's, I, I believe it's a, um, some sort of feline and, you know, a leopard or, uh, you know, a mountain lion, something like that. And then you have the wild boar, which is the prey. Um, so yeah, so the, the you know, the T pillars, there's different enclosures. There's enclosure A, B and C. And actually now they're finding other sites, even, uh, other sites in the area. Carahan Tepe is not far away. Similar dating. Um, there's speculation that there might even be older sites in the area. Um, there you can see like some of the fox uh, symbolism. Here's a more overhead view. Um, that's what I was looking for. Um, but yeah, so it was intentionally buried, supposedly. Um, and it was called, you know, Gobekli Tepe translates to Potbelly Hill. Um, and the interesting thing is the speculation is they buried it intentionally as some sort of like time capsule thing or securing the knowledge kind of a thing. Um, you know, I don't know. Do you have any different interpretations that you've heard that are different than that, Daniel? Well, yeah, I mean, that seems to be one of the thoughts is that someone either around the same time or afterward came and covered it all up, um, perhaps intentionally. And I think that that's very curious to wonder why. Obviously, anyone should try to, you know, come up with ideas as to why someone would do this. I think some of the obvious things would be, well, if we know... And the other thing is just that, you know, even if it were a, a few hundred years back that it was covered up, would the people a few hundred years back know how to date a site like this without just saying automatically, this is... 11,600 years old, you know, it's like, is this right. something that they just saw that, well, this is just a bunch of rocks. Hmm. This is a waste of space. Or were they thinking like, wow, this, this is definitely like not something we need other people knowing that we weren't the first people here, which is often why people describe the issues with the pyramids and all this stuff of, of 
you know, the, the ways in which society had, had advanced, as we think, you know, in this sort of step-by-step -step motion. But I don't know that it was, it's, this seems like a lot of effort. I don't think it's impossible, but I wonder what other ways this could have happened if it was something that happened in a, um, a type of um, geophysical phenomenon, something mm -hmm. that maybe allowed for this to be suddenly covered um, in a way that didn't require people to have to work tirelessly to, you know, with buckets and, and wagons or whatever it was that they took to bring mud and, and dirt and rocks to really just try to preserve it or cover it up. But I think preservation is interesting. If they were just trying to cover it up so people can see it, that's one thing. But also, you know, would, would the materials they used seem practical to do that? And or is there some other effect that weather um, or earth changes might have had to play a part and have a role in submerging all of this in a matrix, which in, in archaeology, you know, some type of layer in which something is resting or preserved within, we call that the matrix. So this has inadvertently become a matrix containing the original archaeological remains, you know, of, of these uh, stone pillars. And so we, we have to differentiate. It's hard to date soil. You just have to date the lever, uh, the, the levels, the layers. Right. So being this is all kind of thrown together, it makes it, us wonder, like, what's the time frame here? It's, it's very um, obfuscated. So it's something that makes us try to work harder to figure out um, the, the time frame, you know, and, and who, who and why. So I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we've had multiple different people on to talk about this. We've talked about this a little bit with Randall Carlson. We've talked about it with Laird Scranton a bunch of times. We've had Laird Scranton on like five or six times. We've totally talked about Gobekli Tepe four times. Uh, Dr. Gregory Little, Andrew Collins. Andrew Collins is actually kicked out of Gobekli Tepe and kicked out of Turkey. He's not allowed back. Uh, oh, I remember that, yeah. Of all those places, so... Um, and that was because he wrote a book called Ashes to Angels, I believe is the name of it, which had to do with uh, the Kurdish people. And there's a whole thing, I guess, with that, with Turkish people. And it's an that. interesting book. Yeah. I've actually never read that one, but I've read a couple of his other books. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, interesting. Is that Path of Souls is a great book, if anybody's interested, too. That's a book that, uh, you know, Gregory Little and them uh, wrote. Um so check that out. But yeah, so um, Gobekli Tepe, um, you know, the interesting thing to me, there's different theories. We've had Martin Sweatman on. Martin Sweatman wrote the book uh, Prehistory Decoded about this, where he correlates um, astronomical alignments with some of the T-pillars um, and stuff like that. So I recommend checking that out. He's a scientist. He's not a, um, specific, that's not specifically his field, but I think he's like a, chemical engineer or something like that from Scotland, but he has a really interesting take, which I think I, you should at very least, if you're interested in Gobekli Tepe, should check out, uh, excuse me. Um, but yeah, I mean, tons of different perspectives. Um, you know, personally, this is like my favorite site. I mean, to, we joke about ancient aliens, but I, that's how I learned about this site. Like I said, it, I didn't learn about it in school and like 10, 12 years ago, I don't know, whenever I was watching one of the earliest episodes of Gobekli Tepe, I saw Andrew Collins walking through there. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Um, so, like, the thing about ancient aliens I always bring up is, like, 
regardless if you believe ancient, I don't believe aliens built anything on earth, by the way, but um, the interesting thing about the show is it introduced me to a lot of cool megalithic sites that I would have never have seen before. Um, right. So there's that, that made me want to like look into this stuff more. So I think that when people poo poo that it's like, I could make the argument that that show's done more for archaeology than a lot of the archaeologists on Twitter that are complaining about it. So, um, yeah, I don't know, just something to think about. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You're right, and I think that it's just it's an interesting part to play in bringing these things to awareness. These places, which otherwise most people will never get to go to, they hear on a weird show about aliens. But you know what? It, it, like you said, it really does. Um, uh, play a part in bringing that into the public awareness and even something like Indiana Jones when it came out there was a boom there was a huge yeah. influx and people interested in archaeology and although a lot of them probably interested in the exotic things they're finding out very quickly it's not always super exotic and exciting and fantastic you're dealing with a lot of very mundane things but there there are these various disciplines uh, and subsections which you can excel in and really start to study very specifically Egyptology or whatever it is that people want to find out about. It's opened the doors to further, um, you know, exploration. So I'm, I'm really interested in this site and, you know, there's a possibility coming up, I think either later this year or next year, I think it might be next year, um, that someone who uh, I'm associated with one of my friends is looking to put together an expedition to Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. And so I'm very much considering that. And I think that it would be great if you're able to go, that would be something I think that would be a amazing journey. And I'm um, just like, putting that out there to let you and yeah, let people sweet. know that that's a possibility. Um, yeah, no, a real I mean, possibility. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know where I'll be at at the time, but I'm, I'm always open to new adventures. And I think that that would be awesome. It would be amazing to go there. And I heard Turkey's beautiful in general, too, you know, like Istanbul. You know, that would be a cool trip to hit some different places. Actually, that uh, Anatolia region in general is pretty fascinating. You have, like, Darren Kuyu. You have some of those underground cave things. You have the above-ground features and stuff like that, too. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, is it a is it one of your friends, do they run one of those specific... I know there's all these, like... Um, you know, tour trip, you know, there's people doing different stuff now. You have people taking people on these ancient mystery tours to, you know, Egypt and Gobekli Tepe in South America. Was there anyone in specifically or? Well, he, his name is Aaron Judkins and he runs, I guess, a program he does called Man versus Archaeology. He takes a very uh, interesting, specific approach. And without getting into too much detail, he's gone through um, to Israel and to the Qumran caves to look at the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, he's been to Turkey already up on Mount Ararat in search of the Ararat anomaly, the supposed ark that rests upon the slopes. Um, so he's been to Turkey already. Right. Um, he's been to a few other places, South America, and an uh, interesting researcher, and he has a very unique perspective. But he's, um, you know, I think going for the first time to Gobekli Tepe and going to look at some of these uh, very ancient sites, which I think is really fascinating. And regardless of whatever, you know, his disposition is, I think he's, it's great that he's open to allowing for other explorers and researchers to take part in such a journey to, um, 
you know, really have a role to play in trying to uncover some of this mysterious history, you know, of our ancient past. So if nice. I get an opportunity to do it, I'll see if I can. If, if you can be a part, um, that would be amazing. So awesome. we'll see what we can do. Um, yeah. And then the other thing about Gobekli Tepe is we mentioned the Cradle of Civilization first, or like or the first, the one we were discussing, you know, Sumer and Acadia and all that stuff. But Gobekli Tepe, there is evidence of agriculture. There's evidence of beer making. There's evidence of um, obviously organized megalithic structure building. There's evidence of all sorts of like hallmarks of civilization. We don't, I don't think we have evidence of animal husbandry. Um, but, you know, you know, the reason why it was built, again, is it some sort of astronomical uh, alignment thing or some sort of... Um, you know, uh, you know, I've heard of even skull cult stuff, which doesn't really make much sense to me. That's more of the mainstream idea. Um, but you know, the Graham Hancock idea is that these people came together at the end of the last ice age or the, the, the younger driest impact situation and tried to collect all the knowledge and put it down and bury it as some sort of time capsule of knowledge. There's that. Is there any other theories you've heard? You know, just I think that it's interesting. I don't think we see any humanoids. Um, we don't see anything resembling people on those pillars. And that makes us wonder, um, you know, they thought enough of these creatures, these animals, to portray them and, as you said, carve out rather than to carve in. Here. And to, to such an extent that it makes us wonder if we, oh, yeah, that's that one. It's the, the, the one slender one that's like this is the one very human, similar to some of these. Yeah, the, this is like the anthrop, like you have the fox. Um skin loincloth thing there like the belt thing and then the hands coming around near the navel which you see in other places too you see it on the moai you see it the, the um, uh, mesoamerica i think the toltec statues you see um yeah you see that that around the navel thing a lot so i don't know what that means in the ancient world but it's fascinating also you see a yeah. lot of the symbolism too you know we've talked about this with laird scranton a lot but look at the little H's, you know, and they're all over the place too. Is that does that mean something? Is that just a design? You know, did they have some sort of symbolism writing thing happening that was would that would be the earliest form of writing, right? If there was that. So I don't know. Interesting stuff. Yeah, it's a great place. I think that it would be an amazing um, opportunity for us to learn about some of these areas that again, like you said, could have been covered up for any number of years and now we're just finding out that uh wow this pushes those dates back things keep getting older and uh it makes us wonder if there are any organic remains still around to be found um or mineralized remains like fossils and things that would be really cool absolutely um yeah well that's my whole thing we've done so many episodes on gobekli tepe what i did was i added our ancient civilization playlist down below so if you're interested there's tons of episodes we've done one specifically on gobekli tepe we've done ones on gobekli tepe correlations with other civilizations all sorts of stuff so go check that out if you're interested um what okay so what was your um fifth one my fifth and final one you know i think i'll keep it short and sweet because i know we're coming toward the end here of of our discussion of all these wonderful <laughs> mysterious places and i figured i'd leave this one for last because i think it's the most um what seems to be yet accessible and unexplored area and a lot of people might think this could be a weird 
choice, but, um, and I'll, I'll actually explain a little bit about why I think this is a, a good choice as well. I, in, in uh, my archaeology class, I had basically um, an assignment where we were tasked with describing a place that would possibly yield the best results of making new discoveries, new findings, new archaeological remains that, um, you know, would be really helpful and, and just for anything. And so, a lot of people chose Egypt or in places in Europe or, you know, in Asia and, and or even America. And I think that those are all like, yeah, absolutely. There are definitely things we can still find everywhere. Um, but to me, I thought, what's the one place or at least a major place that, um, you know, the reason we find things is because of preservation, just like Gobekli Tepe. It's been preserved. So this is a great segue. I think that under that two-mile sheet of ice down there in Antarctica, we're going to find some really interesting things. At least I'd like to think so. I'm hopeful. And if I was to make any sort of prediction about any archaeological findings, it would be that it could very well hold some, uh, you know, gems, some treasures under there. Either, um, you know, some type of uh, remains of a group that made their way there in more recent times. Or before it was frozen, however it got frozen, some people see a flash frozen ice cap movement or something, or was it uh, always like this? And I don't know. I think that there, there's some indication that maybe some people saw the coastline, saw the continent under the ice, and then maybe that a pole shift changed the environment uh, very suddenly. And we know that in some places in the Arctic Circle, we see like the remains of woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos and they seem to be um, in a situation where they're finding organic contents in their stomach which might indicate that they were uh, suddenly frozen in a flash freeze or something to that effect it makes me wonder did something like this happen maybe not in a matter of minutes but like weeks months um, and if you have a settlement you have a group of people who go out and have a small or even large settlement, um, I'm curious to see that we might be able to detect some things under the ice on the continent down in Antarctica. So that's something I find really interesting. And one one uh, thing to supplement that in the last book I'll share, which I think is a really interesting resource, is Michael Cremo and Richard Thompson's Forbidden Archaeology. <laughs> Another tome of a book um really interesting half this thing i think is Dude, index, all these books but... you got to work out just from bringing those books into that room <laughs> i've got a crate over here just for them. so <laughs> i think that this really is um it has implications it shows us that when we find things that contradict the conventional models of history oftentimes they're filtered out they're not accepted they're not examined um and as richard thompson in here says they don't really have a um there's not an intentional conspiracy by these people to say, we're not going to look at this. It just sort of happens automatically. And Michael Cremo, who's um, interested in a lot of things uh, regarding the Vedas and you know, Vedic India and philosophy and things, he, he looks at these objects, these uparts, out-of-place artifacts, in a way that if we find something, it might be... Um, you know, from a different place in time, meaning, let's say, for instance, a group of people traveling could have left it, who brought it from somewhere else, or they, um, you know, show that some human type of group had been in an area which was not previously thought of for a long time. Um, and when we find these things, it could rewrite our history. And I think that that could be the case with Antarctica. If we were to find a civilization 
uh, or the remains of a civilization down there, it would really make us think like maybe there could be a few Gobekli Tepes down there. I think that would be amazing because it's a whole continent that's frozen, you know, or at least the, the surface is right. a mile to two mile sheet of ice. And under that is the actual continent. So it's <laughs> perfect for, for, for preservation because we could find things that are like pristine. We're not going to find things um, like that have been eroded so much that have been exposed to the elements and weathering. Um, I mean, sure, we might find some things like that, but imagine in a place that's got um, in the Arctic North and and in places where we're finding like full bodies of woolly mammoths and and things like this because of the the qualities of preservation allow for that to be uh, intact. I'm excited to think about all the things that could still be down there in Antarctica that have been waiting for hundreds, if not thousands, of years for us to really come back and say. This is this what we were really doing all this time ago? You know, I think that's going to be something exciting that hopefully we can look forward to. So, you know, there's so many places down there. Um, people say that you know it's it's not somewhere you can just readily go to. Um, I've oh, had a buddy you're, who you're not allowed there unless you're a scientist or you get permission. Yeah, I have a buddy who's a geologist and he's gone down there for work that he does, but it's not just like a trip that you can go on, you know. And no. So it's one of those things where I think that because of the obviously the very rigid, challenging nature of what it is, um, it's probably safe to say that people shouldn't just be able to go down there because you'd be liable for a lot of losses of life. I mean, look at Mount Everest. Right. People do that for the, the the thrill of trying to climb a mountain, which is great. But at the same time, like a lot of people succumb to the elements and they're left there. They can't be, you can't go get them, you know? So just imagine that, but at a whole continent. So yeah. I think I'm, there's good reasons why we can't go. I I think it would be awesome to have an opportunity to, but I, until some way we can do it a little bit easier, it's going to be hard. So maybe technology is going to have to help. Maybe we'll have to use that LIDAR. And some people already think there there could be pyramids down there. There could be all kinds of stuff. But I think, I think something. Antarctica is, you know, uh, very promising, not just because it's, you know, it's mysterious and that we don't know, but I think it's got the, the right type of environment to preserve in good condition, things that could still be down there, even organic. So maybe not even fossilized remains, but like bodies of people, of animals, of who knows what. Maybe things we haven't yeah. discovered yet. I mean, there's a, unknown. there's a reason why they do a lot of science down there too. A couple reasons. Like for instance, I know we had Brian Keating on the podcast a long time ago. He runs this podcast called Into the Impossible. I don't know if people know who he is, but he's a pretty prominent uh, astronomer or a cosmologist, I guess is what his title is. Um, he was talking about, you know, like that's where they design these experimental telescopes because there's no light pollution. It's like pure nothing down there. So you can get the best quality data without any interruption or light pollution or anything like that, number one. Um, another thing I think about, there's this documentary called um, Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds by Werner Herzog. Um, where he goes through, it's it's probably one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, and it has to do with like meteorites, comets, asteroids, and their their impact on humanity. Um, and I'm not going to ruin it because there's, there's a lot of cool. There's like spiritual aspects of the documentary. There's metaphysical aspects, and then there's like actual scientific aspects. But one of the main things is he goes down to Antarctica with this, I think. 
South Korean team. I could be mistaken, but they go down there and that's where they look for different types of meteorites because they land there and they there's nothing there's no erosion or anything so they just sit there they can find meteorites that have been you know very recent that are not going to get covered up by anything so um yeah no i found that very interesting that that's where they go to look for these uh meteorites and you're talking about like chondritic meteorites that have like the building blocks of life and different things you know and meteorites are, are big business you know if they land in the desert you have people like racing to get these things because of the minerals and the importance scientists pay people to track these things down and stuff like that so i found that that was really interesting um and to your point i don't think we we couldn't discuss graham hancock without bringing up the piri reese map of 1513 and the Arontius phineas map of 1531 um which are two maps that depict in antarctica without any sort of ice uh with a coastline um so yeah what do you think about that I mean, it's one of those things where I think they just say um, they were they were just either making things up or it's actually a different place or, or the map's kind of inaccurate. Um, but I do think there's something to it. I find that it's one of those issues where um, obviously in a time frame where um, we should have known, and, and Hancock even says that it seems like on the map um, that they describe this is from a collection of source maps that go back to before the time of Alexander the Great. And so that's over 2,000 years ago. Um, and that seems like uh, that could be in line with what we understand if people were navigating down there and they got the coastline. Maybe if, I mean, it'd be great if they were actually there and there were settlements or even people, because we'll, we'll probably find that that's a commonality. We do. We see like people sometimes, but that's why we say the Minnesota Vikings. We knew that the, a group of Vikings, the, a, a community of people who described you know, we now call Vikings were in North America in different ways. We, we could see that Christopher Columbus was not the first person in these areas. And so we have this new idea, maybe not new, but it's something we're newly considering in our academics that it's, uh, it's very common for groups of people from other places in the world to um, travel in small bands and, uh, and sometimes remain in areas and try to either come back eventually or they just couldn't make it or they died off or whatever they, were, they left their stuff and they, they got out of there um, and we find the remains of those things and so I think that's really important to consider that Antarctica could have a number of other earlier groups of people um, known groups we could find out oh hey people from people from Africa people from South America people from Australia these are very close areas you know to this this place that you could travel probably um, you know, and, and we think that, uh, that ancient people weren't transoceanic. We think they weren't transatlantic, transpacific. We think that we, we say that they, they, it was impossible for them to travel yeah, the waters. Of the go ocean. watch Contiki like, or go look up Thor Heyerdahl and Contiki and you'll realize yeah. how easy it actually was. So exactly. And I think that that we'll find that many people probably did. And maybe it was like a, uh, metropolitan. Maybe it was a huge mixing, melting pot of culture, and they cultivated a lot of things together and said, you know what, this is how we're going to survive. We're going to get together, band together, and maybe they realize something's coming. We'll send out emissaries to all corners of the earth. And so I think that's kind of where a lot of ideas of uh, Atlantis come into play as well as people think about 
this place that was once incredible and then went away. I mean, they talk about how it submerged under the, the ocean, the waves, all this. But but maybe if you look at the the, the oceans of the world, Antarctica divides. Um, it's centrally located. It kind of is a in a place that if you were if you lived on it with without ice, you could go in any direction. So maybe there's something to the possibility that an advanced group of people, us um, or whoever, lived there um, alongside any number of other groups of people, creatures, things that might not be around anymore. Um, and I'm hopeful that if this ever anything like this, or even a shred of anything to this effect existed at one point, um, that it's, it's remains, even if we find tools. I mean, to think that we can find bits of stone tools and say, this is a whole group of people, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that enough should suggest that we'll probably find something. And this is, a, you know, out in, an area where everything's kind of open and uh, susceptible to the elements. So I'm extremely excited about the possibilities that are going to be waiting for us uh, there in Antarctica. And I think that it's one of those things where until we really get more um, people or technology or better ways to be able to discover it, it's probably the only way it's going to really um, be affected is either if all the ice just suddenly melts and then it just is exposed and then it can be weathered and, be destroyed or people have already come and gotten stuff and taken it off with it. Um, or somehow it just, uh, you know, um, the qualities of the materials don't hold up and they just, uh, fall apart or something. But it just seems like from what we know from Arctic preservation, uh, the conditions that like known animals, woolly mammoths that are no longer alive, we know of them because they've been preserved in this ice up in the Arctic North. If we know that can happen and does happen with those things, there's no telling, I think, um, you know, with all of the different possibilities of an entire continent. Uh, I mean, that's exciting. So that's that's my last one. I'd say that it's something that might yield the, the most opportunity for results just because it's the least, as we know, least explored um, yeah, I mean, because we've I mean, been I, to every other place. I'd agree with you. I mean, even the Arctic's more uh, explored. So, yeah. Good one. I, I, I think that that's actually a great one. And I agree with your sentiments about it being kind of like uh, encapsulating because of the ice encapsulating the the uh, that region and just the amount of stuff, even if there's nothing like crazy advanced or civilization or whatever, just the amount of like new species of animals and uh, insects and different things that could be there, you know. So uh, my last one is what happened on Easter Island. Um, so we've done a three part series in the past. You can go watch those. It'll be part of that playlist I added down below. Um, the first episode is the mainstream academic theories and hypotheses. The second one's the alternative. And then the third one's a follow up. Um, so this is something I've researched a ton, um, I know all the different theories, um, not just how they moved the Moai, how, how they carved them, what they're made out of, volcanic tuff, red scoria, all the different stones, uh, you know, basalt with the earliest ones. But the thing that, again, I, I aside from timelines and not getting caught up in like the way they move things and things like that, the most interesting thing is the people. So... Um, you have different mythologies. You have the Birdman cult, 
Tengatu Manu, I believe is what that's known as. Um, and you also have the Builder Cult, which was known as like the earlier builders of the Moai. Um, so the Birdman Cult came later on, but the build the, the Builders is the one that's interesting to me. Um, but aside from all that, um, the people just disappeared. They started to thin out, and um, there's speculations, obviously. They're, the main speculation is they ran out of resources, and they got trapped there. Um, could it have been some sort of, like, uh, you know, I, I, who, who was I talking about this with? Uh, I think it was Dan Freeman. Shout out to Dan uh, recently on an episode. It's like some sort of pit stop, you know, like in between Polynesia, Micronesia, and South America, something like that. And now the genetic evidence has come out that the Rapa Nui people of the island uh, have pre-Columbian um, South American DNA. So, and if you look at even the Ahu, which the Ahu are the the altars that the um, the the altars that the Moai stand on, those are they're, they're called Ahu. There's an Ahu. It's called Ahu Vinapu. And if you look at it very closely, it looks oddly uh, similar to Sacsayhuaman and that polygonal masonry. So go check that out. Anyways, I, I we've done episodes on it. I have slideshow presentations. I even bring up a whole psychedelic element to it, which there are DMT-containing um, trees, uh, uh, acacia cabins, and then also some other things going on there, possibly even some sort of fish inebriation could have been happening when they had to fish on the shore after they ran out of resources so i've gone through the whole thing but i still am not convinced one way or the other what was happening because there's talks of cannibalism there's actually a thing called cannibal cave there um there's these these cults the different cults there's warring things happening there's a mythology of the uh the hanau epe and the hanahu i forget the, the second one but it's the long ears versus the short ears and i think the speculation from Thor Heyerdahl is maybe one of them was the Polynesian people descendants and then one of them was the South American people descendants and that's why you might have had some sort of tension on the island so stuff like that so that that's my main one I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we are getting we're at the three hour mark this is the second longest <laughs> episode in mind escape history which it doesn't even feel oh, like wow. we've been doing this for three hours but <laughs> I guess we've done longer Twitter spaces though so it's not that crazy yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's, that's my main thing. Do you have any thoughts on Easter Island? Because I do I, find it, you know, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, just how remote it is. And like you said, being that there are a lot of possibilities with people coming and going and actually traversing the oceans and making it as a waypoint. Um, it could very well be something similar to what we'll find in Antarctica. When we get there, we might not obviously find any people. We might find remains and wonder same thing. What what happened to all of these people? You know, and so I think it's one of those issues where we see that possibility there at a very, um, maybe not a practical place, but a much more uh, tangible uh, place for for anyone to now go to and see. We do see stuff. We do see the remains of material culture of maybe a few cultures throughout time, because, like you said, maybe it had been a place where uh, it was a stop off and and you had to get you know resources where you could, and maybe you'd find hey there, there's already people here. And they're from a journey from somewhere else. And, you know, maybe there was a point of relation. Maybe they could communicate. Maybe not. Maybe it was um, very similar to the Sentinelese Islands that at first it seems like, hey, there's some people. Let's go. Let's go say hey. <laughs> and then you get there yeah. and you don't come back. <laughs> no and, dice. Um, so, 
it's one of those things that makes us wonder when we see the remains, we don't have anyone to talk to. A whole lot of those people um, could have gone through a lot of challenges that made them um, isolated for the rest of their you know remaining time. And uh, it's, it's challenging because when we see some of these types of places like Sentinel uh, Islands, we know that there are people, but we, we can't just ask them, hey, what's this all about? And right. it makes us wonder if we, even if we did have someone there to talk to and say, hey, what's going on with a lot of these the stone heads and all of this? Because I think, it, like you said, there's all, all of these different ideas. And we do know about how um, you know, some of these things can be done. And we have to consider the practical means of doing so versus, uh, you know, why would, why would there be such an effort on this island to do all this stuff, take so much energy, you need, you need to be able to sustain yourself to make such an effort. If there's not enough resources, what's the point anyway? Well, that's so, one of the main theories, too, is that they deforested the island. So what happens is supposedly on the canoes, they brought over rats by accident or I guess maybe on purpose. And the rats ate all the palm nuts and then no new palm trees grew. And they used all the palm trees to, for different things, cut out canoes, possibly help with moai construction or moving them or whatever they were doing. Um, you know, there's different theories on that. So I'm not going to pretend like I know how they did that. There's the video where it shows how they walk them back and forth. And that is part of the mythology is that they walked into place. But the one of the, the earliest origin mythologies I find interesting is the king of is it the Marquesas Island, or I don't know, it was one of these other islands. His name was King Hotu Matua, I believe was his name. And he had this dream or no, he had a, a guy who, um, I don't know if it was like his assistant or something, this Haumaka, I believe. I'm trying to remember names here. If I get it wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, but he had this dream where um, he found this beautiful island where they were all going to move to, and it was going to be their their main you know source of civilization. And he sent out his seven scouts to go find this place. So these scouts go out, and they actually find this island, and they come back. Um, and then that's kind of the history of the island. But then the interesting thing about it is there's this place on the island. It's Ahu Akivi. Again, Ahu um, is the altar, and then, you know, Akivi is the area. And then you have the seven Moai. It's the only seven Moai on the island that face out towards the ocean, and those are supposed to represent the scouts. The rest of the Moai on the island face inward. Um, and there's different speculations that the, the, the Moai facing inward are looking upon the people, um, and the more, uh, the more you put in to creating the Moai and like um, protecting the ancient stuff, um, the more you get out of it supposedly in the afterlife kind of a thing. And they're looking upon you and watching out for you in that way. So that's what I know about it. There's a lot more in those episodes. But, yeah, that's, it's, it's my whole thing is about like what happened to the population when it plummeted. Did they just run out of resources? Was there wars and stuff going on also the rongo rongo script which is their language and writing is very bizarre um symbolism and stuff so yeah lots of stuff going on oh the basalt moai which they don't know where the basalt came from because there's no basalt quarry on easter island but jacques Cousteau, i think in the, like the 70s or 80s did a dive off the coast and he found like an underwater possible basalt quarry that he thinks that maybe that's where the basalt came from, which were the earliest Moai. So I don't know, just speculations. But uh, yeah, that's my last one, and uh, we can. Wrap it's incredible. It up. The only thing I would add to that is that you know a lot of people may not realize because we know the heads, and it's actually one of the emojis. You know um, that many of them 
aren't just heads, but that yeah. they have full bodies that are buried and why or how they were buried is curious. But, you know, I think that that's something that people don't realize often is that they have full bodies with very similar, um, you know, features to the, the stone, uh, in Gobekli Tepe. It's We've all been curious. tainted by Pink Floyd and the division bell. I remember seeing, <laughs> here's the weird thing though, is I remember seeing somebody wear that t-shirt. I think it was pa- pulse tour t-shirt with the, or no, it was division bell division bell the division bell t-shirt tour when i was younger i don't know how old i was eight nine ten thinking that's kind of interesting you know like there's something going on what's with that head you know and that <laughs> right. just kind of like stuck with me you know and then like um now i think back i'm like that's kind of weird that things that we find mysterious even back then are things that still ring true with the mystery today so i don't know just throwing that out there yeah very well said uh, but yeah, is there anything else? I think that's it. I mean, that's all I had. Um, you know, just to be able to cover um, these different ones, I know we kind of hit it off, starting off, like I said, ancient Mesopotamia, the Sumerian culture, traditions, mythologies, all of that. Um, getting into Egypt, I think we kind of uh, converged on Egypt a little bit there. Um, and we kind of uh, headed over into Vedic India with a lot of the different things there. Um, very fascinating stuff. And just to hit a lot of the highlights of this, um, it's hard enough to cover uh, in his amount of time. But we went over to the Americas. Um, before that, you know, you, you had the Elysian. And I think that, I mean, that's something that obviously not a lot of people are familiar with. It really affected, I think, a lot of philosophical outlook as well um, and stemming from there you know like the americas and then coming over to gobekli tepe in turkey um, antarctica and of course easter island um, what a fascinating array of places cultures histories people um, material culture all of it i think it's a it's a great way to be able to kind of showcase many of these mysterious parts of our past um, it's who we have been i think in some way it's still there with us we just don't really know exactly what's going on and when we try to look back it makes us wonder what we were really up to maybe not what these people were up to because in some way they we are them they they were there um as our ancestors in many ways i think it's still ingrained in our genetics and we're just trying to find ways to make sense of it through our modern lens of perception so you know mike it's been a, a great honor to be able to share a lot of these things with you a little bit of just my personal interest and taste and what i like about some of these historic places and and ideas of course, a lot of just abbreviations of, of things. But I think that, again, all the resources that are provided here are just things that I think are, are cool books and, and fun ways to kind of learn about some of the lesser known aspects of our history, which I am definitely an advocate for. I think we should continue to push the boundaries of what we understand to be human uh, origins and or maybe the you know sense of uh, scope when it comes to where we've been this whole time, where we're going and what we can learn from our past. So this has been great. Awesome, man. Yeah. And I, you know, I mentioned this before, but yeah, we got to keep getting you back on here too. And I know Maurice is going to be out. So anytime you're free in the next few weeks, maybe we can continue this. Cause I mean, look, realistically, we didn't even really cover, I mean, <laughs> I could come up with 15 more of these right now if I wanted to, <laughs> you know, like I'm sure you could too. So, um, but yeah, man, yeah, it was hard f- enough just choosing five and yeah, I know, that, right? I'm like choosing very big, <laughs> you know, areas. So you're right. But, but yeah, thank you for sharing your 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 knowledge and your expertise. And I think that you know I like talking to you because even though 
we are kind of on the same frequency with the philosophy side of it. I think that you do bring um, interesting takes that I don't even think about sometimes, which I like talking with people that are coming from different angles and coming from different places because I don't like, you know, echo chambers. So, um, but yeah, I appreciate, you know, everything you're doing. Everybody, I highly, highly recommend following Daniel on Twitter if you don't already. I also recommend checking out his YouTube channel, The Vortex. Um, he's got a bunch of phenomenal, um, you know, interviews that he goes to all these conferences and interviews all these top people. He's, he's interviewed Graham Hancock and, um, you know, all the UFO people, you name it. Just go check out his channel. It's called The Vortex. I have the link down below. He's got a website. Um, and, yeah, if you want to support our show, just click that link tree link down below. Uh, we've got a Patreon for just $2 a month. You'll get all sorts of access to exclusive stuff, even something I just uploaded with Daniel uh, from a few weeks ago. Uh, I just uploaded um, a segment with uh, Bobby Azarian as well, the author of uh, The Romance of Reality. And we've got stuff, Graham Hancock, or not Graham Hancock, I wish we had Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, uh, Rick Strassman, um, you name it. We've had Anybody that we've had on the show, we've probably done a Patreon with them, so go check that out. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, we've got a merch store. So if you want to check that out, go do so, please. Cool ancient designs in there. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, the, the most important thing is if you like our show and you don't want to do any of those things, at least just go on to Apple podcast and Spotify, leave us a nice five-star review or subscribe to our channel on YouTube, like this video. And, uh, yeah, shout out to Maurice, my bro. Uh, he'll be back towards the end of September and, uh, shout out to Shane, our producer, you're amazing, bro. Uh, keep doing your thing. And again, Daniel, thank you so much. You're awesome. And, uh, shout out to Sandy. I see you out there. Shout out to Tom. I see you out there. Uh, TS trays. See you, uh, Jean, uh, Baptiste. I see you. Everybody else that like listened or paid attention tonight. I love you. You guys are all awesome. And, uh, yeah, same way we ended it all. I love everybody. Stay safe out there. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace.